that unit was it, it was an experience you know you get to see children children are extremely resilient um, especially especially when you're talking about children who have been sexually abused I think some of the hardest interviews I've ever watched are the forensic interviews with some of those children who were so incredibly resilient I grew up a lot in that because those those kids made me grow up because I had to be able to sit there and listen to that story without my whole entire mindset on society changing because I had just had my first child when I got there. That's what we do. You get over it and you keep moving on. But having worked there, having known what type of content I was exposed to, having known the psychological effects that it had on me, I was hyper aware of the people that worked for me and really wanted to know how are you doing. I need to know these things because I need to know if you need time off. I need to know if you, you need some time away from the job. I need to know if you need to transfer out. You know, these cases you take home, these are the worst kind of cases to take home. I hope when I leave this career that I have left a legacy that allows other individuals to be able to do the same thing and come along in the ranks and just be able to accomplish whatever it is that they want and understand that somebody cares about them accomplishing everything that they've ever set out to do, whether it's at this department or outside of this department. I hope that I've been that person for someone. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. True leaders always practice the three R's. Respect for self, respect for others, responsibility for all their actions. Welcome back ATL family. Today we're sitting with a truly, truly incredible human being. And the Dallas Police Department has been lucky to have her since she graduated from the academy class 286. She is a Dallas native, went to Booker T. Washington, studied dance, Sam Houston State alum, graduating with a bachelor's in biology, pre-med, and dance in 2003. She interned with McKinney Medical Examiner and was accepted into the Dallas School of Mortuary Science. So how did Dallas PD get so lucky to get someone like this? She chose to serve the city. She walked away from one field and took a journey on the streets of southwest Dallas. 
It led her to investigating some of the most horrific crimes. Child exploitation. Internet crimes against children. The true powerless victims in society. She promoted a sergeant and supervised units like public integrity, internal affairs. And now she is one of the leaders of Dallas PD's most high-profile units. Dallas Homicide. We are proud to welcome on Sergeant Jessica Criddle. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm kind of catering to the ATL fans. They've, I've had several people ask to get you on. Oh, wow. And, yeah, several. And, oh, no, it, she's on the list. Now, finally, you're Now here. you're here. Yeah, I'm you're here. here. Yes. Thank you. Ta-da. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We also have the great Danny Canetti. He's sitting in as a guest co-host. He finally... Didn't have a warrant to run or some SWAT training to do. And, well, and there's was, training going on right now. It's supposed to be somewhere else. <laughs> okay. But. All right. Well, nobody knows when we record this, so you're good. Well, thanks for being here, Danny. Um, you ready to dive into this? Let's go. All right. I want to talk about growing up. I'm, I'm a Dallas native myself and grew up in the Oak Cliff area. I want to, what part of town did you grow up in? The same, Oak Cliff. Okay. Yeah. Where at? Where at? Yeah, it was right there uh, near like the Camp Wisdom Hampton area. Yeah. yeah I well, I was there. at Polk and um, I, I went to Birdie Alexander. That's where I went. Oh, you sh- really? I did. An owl, right? I did. Yeah, the Birdie yeah. Alexander owls? Yeah. The, yeah. I think they were, no, Apaches. What? Yeah. Huh. Well, because I have a picture with me and like a, maybe it was some other spare school came in as a mascot, maybe. a big owl. It, but yeah, it, could it was. could have been the owls. Yeah, because I live off Kernwood over there, Kernwood and Polk. I was right there at... Kernwood and Indian Ridge. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Did we you ever see each other bop- at the bus? Yeah. The bus well, stop, I or? mean, I never really walked home because okay. I, yeah, since I stayed right and around the corner. no way she's the same age as Joe. I mean, <laughs> no, look, I'm much look older. Look at what we're looking yeah, at. Here. Yeah, yeah, I am much older. Not by much, believe yeah, it or not. No, I, 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 we literally walked to school because I was, Bertie Alexander was a block away. Yeah, from it was a block away 13, from 17 Kernwood. Yeah. But my brother went to Carter. My sister did. Wow. He graduated yeah. in 83. My sister graduated in 93. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, there we go. Yeah, slightly, slightly <laughs> it's a little like a bit. It's like the Spider-Man name in here. You guys it's are just crazy. Yeah, like, we're hey, seven. The same person yeah, as you. Yeah, it's like yeah. that ke- seven uh, degrees from Kevin Bacon. It's like we're, <laughs> like we're all seven degrees from Jessica Criddle. Yeah, so. that, that is, it is funny because I know so many people like that. Like I grew up around so many people that I didn't know. I've arrested people that I didn't know. Yeah. They was like, I remember you from school. And I'm like... Oh I knew you were going to be a criminal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, what was what was life like growing up over there for you? It was really fun for me. Okay. You know, um, we had the creek. Did you ever go play in the creek back there? Yeah, behind uh, uh, Birdie. Yeah, oh, it yeah. ran behind my yeah. house. Yeah, so we we used to play in the creek yeah, back crazy. there, and and just that's you know, so we, funny. Yeah, I had we no did idea. all of that back there. I mean, it was such the community. Everyone used to come and, and play in our community all the time. So. Um, my house, we had like all the balls and jump ropes and, mm-hmm. you know, everything. So everyone would come on our street and would play. Um, you know, it was just, I don't remember a time in childhood where there was anything where I felt like I couldn't do. Like it just, I felt like I had so much nourishment. It was community was really big in my community. I remember if someone had a death in a family, everybody on the street would cook, you know, it was just all of those different things that I remember growing up, it was like a true village, you know, in my community. So I don't remember having any really bad experiences growing up. No, it's not like that now. I mean, no, I, it's I mean, it's, as I worked over at South Central, which is now, that's South Central, mm-hmm. every other house, a drug house over there. Yeah. Birdie Alexander is still standing. I'm yeah, surprised because is. 
uh, of all the schools that have been torn down yeah. and rebuilt, that's still the original building still standing there. So where'd, um, where'd you go to high school? I went to Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. Oh, tell us about that. If I ever had to do any part of life over, it'd be high school. So that was an experience that I will say um, I, I can't replace that experience. It was it was so emerged and so engulfed in the arts. Uh, I, I totally enjoyed everything about it, you know. Um, and we had the academic curriculum as well. But you felt like a professional artist the entire time you were at school. And there was this expectation that you would act like a professional artist while you were at school. Um, so I think that it was one of those things that, um, you know, it's really hard to tell anyone else that goes to a regular school because we didn't have sports. I was a dancer. And so that was the sport. Like dancers were the athletes of the school. We were the athletes. And so it would be someone playing their instrument in the hallway. You have a dancer dancing down the hallway and a singer dancing, a singer singing to the, the song and the dance. So it you like had all of these arts that came together. Then you have a visual artist who's drawing what they see and hear and all of these things that were just so great and dynamic about it. Everybody just kind of blended everything, you know, and it was a, like a, it was a, it was a, it wasn't like a reality in school, you know, and it's 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 strange to say that uh, because I enjoyed it so much, but it, it just wasn't like most people's high school experience, you know. Different world. Totally different world. So Sounds like a Disney movie. It felt yeah. like a Disney movie. So well, that <laughs> yeah. Gaston just breaks out in the hallway and starts <laughs> No, seriously. Singing. Seriously. Like we would throw down some cardboard and you have some kids break dancing over here you know you have some ballerinas theater sets being built in the background at the yeah, same time exactly yeah. Did, yeah okay so speaking of break dancing do you remember the movies that came out in the 80s the yeah, uh, you had breaking colors you, no you remember breaking two remember the, they did a sequel to that danny likes it I don't know. It's Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo. Do you remember that? Oh, I do remember Electric yeah. Boogaloo. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. See? yeah. See? I do. <laughs> he hate. I always bring it up. I'm and stop, and we're going to start the recording over again. <laughs> He's got to go to the dentist after this for yeah, grinding yeah, his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> it's a power down for him. I love it. Back no. to being serious. Yeah. Oh, so you did dance. I did. What kind of dance? Classical, interpretive? Oh, I did all of it. of it. I did Jazz. all of it. I did. Uh, well, so there you have to take uh, modern and ballet. Those were your core classes that you had to take. Um, but then I studied world dance. And so I did a little African dance. We did tap, um, some jazz. Um, once I got in college, I kind of went a little bit further uh, with world dance. But primarily in high school, that's what they offered us. Um, it's like the African dance. And we had some hip hop come in a little bit. Uh, not much. We had more jazz because we had older teachers and we had teachers that were classically trained, mm-hmm. um, you know, people from Juilliard and things like yeah, that. So coming in the classic us. fundamentals. Yeah, we got a lot of the classic fundamentals, uh, which I truly enjoy. I never had the ballerina body, though. So, you know, being cast in those parts. So I had to deal with those things as a teenage kid. Um, trying to figure out my way in that world um, was really hard because you have girls who have been dancing since they were three. Honestly, I only went there because I didn't want to go to Carter. So I auditioned just because. And, you know, it was one of those things. I was always one of those people who I didn't want to go to the next level of school with the same people I had been going to school with. And so I would try another school. So instead of going to, I think it was Halsey, wasn't that the feeder mm-hmm. school? Yeah. I went to Atwell. Um, I went to Atwell too, and then Griner one year. Yeah, 
Yeah. And then from there, I went to arts. And so um, I was always wanting to see a new group of individuals and meet new people and experience new things. And so an entire time while I was in high school, it was just uh, it was like a new experience all the time. You know, we had teachers coming in, guest teachers. We had um, students from all across the country. We had kids who it was like college almost. We had students whose parents were, you know, living in California and they would buy them an apartment down here. They would have an apartment. So did you feel like you didn't you didn't get a regular teen upbringing, like as far as the high school experience? No, no, it wasn't at all. Yeah, not at all. It it almost felt like uh, being a performer and, you know, having to get your schoolwork. I chose to work, you know, after I turned 16, I chose to work just because I wanted to have my own money. And then like buying my leotards and my toe shoes and all of those things that were so expensive. Yeah. You know, I didn't want my parents to have to, you know, deal with that. So I got a job so I could pay for those things. And what so, was your first job? Oh, my first job. I was working in Redbird Mall. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. in this it store. It was nice back in the day. It was back in the day. Uh, it Joe was had a job Coda. at Redbird Mall too. N- n- no. <laughs> no, no. Oh, so everything else has been going yeah. that way. I, <laughs> no, she got she won up me there. I didn't even work at Redbird. Yeah, uh, yeah. I worked there, and it was in a clothing store called I think it was called Coda. I think that's what it was called. Um, it was a men's clothing store, and so Coda. yeah, it was like kind of they had like hip hop clothes or something like that. I, I just remember it was men's clothing. And so, um, yeah, I worked there and uh, danced and still had to maintain, you know, my GPA. Did you and dance so, at CODA when you were working? Actually, I did. Ah, yeah, I can that. <laughs> well, that's because all of my dancer friends, I had I had <clears throat> several friends that, that danced with me also nice. who were also there. So, yeah, we kind of made fun. Redbird Mall, you know, I, I grew up going there my brother and I would go there and uh, I remember Chick-fil-A that was the only Chick-fil-A in yeah, town it was. remember they'd stand out mm-hmm. front with a platter with the, mm-hmm. the samples yeah. and then that was before they had any standalone stores right. in, in uh, Dallas area yeah Redbird Mall used to be a magical place it did. for a teen yeah yeah it did you know do you uh do you remember it was I don't know if the theater was still open when you were over there it had to be but you it was, ate no it was it wasn't there it was the one that was at uh Polk and Hampton and there was a Tom Thumb over there and there was yes, a little theater. I remember yes. that one sat in the corner back there. Yeah. <clears throat> and yep. then they had the Mott's store. Yep, remember the, the Mott's. Mott's. Yep. Yeah. I we go there that. all the time. Yeah. 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 I saw uh, the the original Halloween there mm-hmm. at that theater when I was only four. Which yeah. Is, Thinking back, my parents they didn't they didn't get they just want me out of the house. But <laughs> did anyway. they leave you there while you were four? No, my my older brother who was ten years older than me took me. Uh-huh. Okay. So he was fourteen watching Halloween and I was four. Wow. Yeah. You, so much for PG. Oh, there were no ratings back then. <laughs> they didn't give it. This makes all sorts of sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we should have had, she needs to come back as a guest co-host. She could run this whole thing. All day long, I could do this. Let's do it. No, well, you careful what you when. wish for. Hey, you tell me when. So, you, what drew you to dance? I know you went there, you went there, but once you got there, what did you, what did you enjoy most about it? The challenge. Okay. It was such a challenge for me. Uh, coming from uh, being a track runner and, and gymnast, uh, it making my body move in those ways and um, being able to hyperextend out of my joints and all of these different things that, of course, give me problems now. But, yeah. I mean, it, it was those things like that. It was always the challenge. I really enjoyed um, learning. It was It was something new, and because it was so new for me, and I didn't have that background like a lot of the girls, I had to work harder. And so um, 
with working harder, I took my summers and things like that where I was taking dance classes. I would be in my house doing my own bar routines. You know, I would do all of these things just to make sure that I was able to just compete with the competition that I had at the school because we were always competing amongst amongst each other. It was a healthy competition, but it was always a a competition that was there because, you know, uh, you want to be cast in all the shows. You want to, you know, you don't want to be an understudy in something. And and sometimes that's what your role was. You were just an understudy because if you had someone that came in and they like this dancer better or they like this body type better or something like that, then, okay, you had to work harder to be just that. And so it was a lot of pressure there, I think. Um, But it was good pressure. Um, Some people cracked under that pressure. We did have some girls that had to leave. There were a lot of eating disorders. Um, There were a lot of uh, psychological issues uh, that went on because, of course, you're going through puberty. Your brain is changing. You have all of these different things that are going on, and you're in this semi-professional world. And so it, um, it could take its toll on an individual. So it gave that gave me a lot of mental strength to deal with um, a lot of the things that I deal with as an adult. Um, you know, stage fright. I don't have stage fright anymore. I can talk to anybody. You can put me anywhere, um, and it just doesn't bother me uh, because I've fallen on my face in front of ten thousand people. So, yeah. so I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but it's just okay. being inoculated to that kind of stress. What did that do for you as a police officer, especially like going through the academy? And having to perform in front of peers, in front of instructors, like, you you know what I'm getting at, especially in scenarios. Yeah, Yeah. everything for me, it it would come as just that I was acting, you know. And and so um, even on the street sometimes, you just, some of it becomes an act. You know, sometimes I, some of my favorite calls to go to were CIT calls before they would call CIT calls. Um, because when you deal with someone who's in crisis and they don't know that they're in crisis and you have to be in the moment with that person, you know, I remember one time I was on training and this lady, she swore that aliens were coming through her windows and all she wanted to do was foil paper her windows. So I went to the dollar store, me and my trainer, we went to the dollar store and we bought foil paper and I came back and I foil paper that lady's windows with her. And that lady never called again. She had been calling all day. You know, she just wanted someone to come there because that's what she felt. She felt like aliens were coming through her window. So I was in the moment with that lady for, you know, just that amount of time. And she appreciated that. And and for her, that was her reality. So it's sometimes being able to act, being able to, um, you know, make someone feel like you're there with them. You understand what's going on. I'll never understand what that lady was going through, just to be honest, um, because Fortunately, I don't have any psychological issues that cause me to to be in that mental space. But if I was, I would want somebody to take that time with me and just try to understand me in that moment, you know. And so I didn't take that for granted with her in that moment. And so, yeah, being in the academy and, you know, going through scenarios and going through all these different things. um, I always tell myself whenever I'm faced with a new challenge that it's only temporary. Get through it. Just get through it. And so um, the academy, of course, it, you have a lot of mental strains. You're thinking about, okay, I got to pass this test. I have to do this. Everybody's looking at me. You know, I have to get through this academy because this is a job or a career. You know, um, so I had to, I had to get in that mind space. I had to get in that mindset to understand 
that in order to get through this, um, you just have to be in the moment. You have to get through it. You have to focus. Uh, and that's pretty much how I get through a lot of stressful situations, you know, even though I don't want to be in that situation. The hardest thing for me going through the academy was the gun range. And so someone once told me, when there's something that you hate doing, you continue to do it until you learn to love it. And so I go out to the range once a week now. I try to go out to the range at least once a week um, now. And it's comfortable for me now. You know, it's something that I like to do. It's a stress reliever. But these are things that I had to learn, that I hated to do, that I had to learn to love to do. And so across the board, everything in life that's a challenge for me. If I hate doing it, I continue to do it until it's something that I learn to appreciate. Because it's such a challenge for me that it's something that I feel like in order to overcome that challenge, it has to be, you have to break it down to fundamentals. You know, I, I tell my son, like with math, he's really good at math. And I tell him, everything breaks down to addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, no matter what type of math you're doing. If you learn the fundamentals, you will be just fine. You just have to know when to apply them. And so he's, um, he's really good at math, but that's his challenge. I have my challenges. Everyone has their challenges. And I think it's just about our perspective and how we approach them um, instead of shutting down. I, and I'm human, of course. I have my, addition, my, my initial shutdowns, you know, and, and my blocks and my reservations. And I have to ask myself internally, what are those reservations? Why do I have those reservations? Why am I dealing with those reservations the way that I am? Is it something in my past, the reason why, that I'm having these reservations with what I'm dealing with and the stress that I have wrapped around whatever the situation it is that I'm, I'm in? And so with that, that's how I get through everything, you know. What I hear from you is extreme work ethic, but also <clears throat> you're not comfortable being average or mediocre at anything you do i mean and that goes back to you your work ethic you put in of actually caring to be you worked harder in uh in school to compete because you wanted to be good at it and that that says a lot about you as a person and your your reputation now as a as a uh, as a police officer and as a detective and now as a supervisor over detectives that's where you're, that's what your reputation is now. You may not even be aware of what people say, but that's what they say. And I mean, look, it sounds like it goes back to you being in high school of establishing a strong foundation for yourself. Because there's a lot of people who just be comfortable being being average, getting by. You didn't you didn't want to. You, that's not you. That, that was never you know that was never me. Not even as a kid uh, when I was younger. Uh, if I had a test, I would be up at 4 a.m. in the morning studying for a test that I've already studied for, that I already know the material. Um, and so my my parents used to always wonder because they were like, this girl is going to have a nervous breakdown by the time she's 10. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to I had to be top academic student. I had to be all these different things. I had to win at the, you know, the science fair. I had to I even told my parents when I stop winning first place in track, I'm done. And I went all the way to state and still was winning. And my mom was like, okay, so you went to state and you won. And now what? And I was just like, I don't know, maybe I try something new. And so, you know, it was just one of those things where my parents, they never, they never tried to talk me down off of something. I know I probably drove them crazy because I was in everything. Um, but it was always for me one of those things where, I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it as um, I was trying to be better. 
I was trying to be more than mediocre. I always saw it as... Um, trying to be challenged. Yes. That's what you said earlier. Yes. yes. Yeah. And being challenged for me, I'm like my only competitor. I don't look at anyone else and say, I want to be better than you at this. I don't look at anyone else and say, um, I want to be as good as them. I say, I want to be the best me I can in this and in this moment and in this, whatever this field or whatever it is that I'm doing, I want to be the best me that I can be in the midst of it. And so, um, yes, I, I, I would have to say that's what it is. I enjoy being challenged. So people respond to pressure in, in usually two different ways, right? You can mm-hmm. either say pressure is a horrible thing and I don't want it. Right. Or you can look at it and say pressure is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's, I've told everybody, my kids, pressure is a privilege. It is. You know, that we don't ever put pressure on people that can't handle it. Right. Or that aren't capable. And so when you accept pressure as a privilege, mm-hmm. you've capitalized on that and obviously ridden that horse all the way to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it doesn't ride me at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of a strong work ethic and thirst for knowledge, you go into college. Where did you go to school? I went to Sam Houston State. Okay, shout out Sam Houston State. Yeah. Uh, what were your majors? I double majored in dance and biology uh, with a pre-med emphasis. Uh, I had a dance scholarship and an academic scholarship. And so I went there. Um, I had turned down offers to uh, Florida and Florida and M. Yeah, Florida and M. And uh, MIT. And I because I wanted to pay for college myself. I knew I couldn't afford MIT, even though I really wanted to go there. Um, I don't like the cold either, so that wasn't going to work. But um, Florida, I didn't like it much. It was a party school. I wasn't really a party a party type, so that didn't work for me. Um, so. I came back. I came back and I went to junior college. I went to El Centro for one semester um, because I told my teachers at at, um, Booker T, they actually graduated from Sam Houston as well. And so with speaking to some of them, they were like, why don't you try this school? And I was like, I really don't want to go there. My parents wanted me to go to UNT or Texas Women's or something like that. And I was like, nope, that's too close to home. And so, you know, um, I, I never really wanted to stay too close, but didn't want to go too far either. Uh, I wanted to be, you know, a, a, somewhere they could at least drive to. Um, but when I went to Sam Houston, I majored in both of those. Um, I, gra- I graduated in three and a half years uh, from there doing both. And I was when I went there, when I first got there, my advisor, he said, it's going to take you at least five years. I said, no. It's going to take me less than that. I have a four-year scholarship, (laughs) and I'm paying for school. I have to get out of here in at least four years. So uh, I did. I I got out of there in three and a half years, and um, it it was a blur. It was a complete blur. I took the max hours. I was in the dean's office as if I was in trouble all the time because I had to get permission to take as many hours as I was taking each semester. And the dean, he said, you're going to really, really burn yourself out. I said, as long as I keep pushing. I said, I won't. I'll it's be temporary. done. It'll it's temporary. It's temporary. That's a bit. exactly what I kept telling myself. Kept telling myself it's only temporary. I said, I only have this amount of years. I said, I still want to go to medical school. I said, so I still want to do this while I still have the energy to do it. Now, looking back on it, if knowing what I know now, I probably would have just taken an MCAT and skipped college, gotten my basics out of the way, took the MCAT and went straight to medical school. But I didn't. And I didn't know that you could even do that. I didn't know that was an option at the time. Dance is still a part of your life then, too. I so you're trying to, to keep it. Yeah. I do. I love to dance. And um, so it was it was a, uh, one of those things that was kind of like my stress reliever. 
I'll go to a biology class. I'll come in from a lab. I slide into the rehearsals. You know, I leave there. I go back to a lab. You know, I'm getting home at like 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I'm back up at eight o'clock. I always had an eight o'clock class. I always made sure I had an early class because I was just that kid that wanted to be done by noon. I was the exact opposite. (laughs) Most people I wouldn't sign up for anything that started before 10 (laughs) o'clock. That's most people. Most people, my eight o'clock classes were always empty. So that's why I like them, you know. And you got parking. He probably was the one trying to find a spot and he parks where you shouldn't and then get a ticket. It was a bike. It was always (laughs) a bike for me. Yeah. Smart, smart. Yeah. So you pre-med, so you wanted to get in the medical field. I did. What were your original goals whenever you, you chose those majors? Well, from the age of 10, I wanted to be a mortician. I wanted okay. to own my own funeral home. Wow. Um, as I got older, I realized that most um, funeral homes are corporately run. And I always told myself I never want to be part of corporate America. Nothing to people who like corporate America, but that was just never me. I was always a free spirit. I said, nah, I don't think I want corporate America for myself. So, um, but as I got older and as I started to see different things and I got a little bit more experience and I got to talk to a few more people who were in the medical field, then that kind of changed. I wanted to be a forensic pathologist and work as a medical examiner. And so um, I went through college and then I did an internship. Um, and I was really fortunate because there was no one that would allow anyone who was not in medical school to do an internship. And Dr. Rohr and McKinney uh, actually allowed me to do an internship in uh, McKinney and McKinney Medical Examiner's Office. What drew you to that field, uh, mortuary science? You know, I don't know. I really don't know. A, that, is a, that is a very different it is. type of path and, and interest. Yeah. Um, Going from dance to... It's a lot of death. Were you looking for reality, living in the <laughs> dance and art world so much that you felt like you needed to put one foot into reality and be, well, be exposed to something more? I felt like I wasn't going to make enough money in dance. For sure. <laughs> just being for sure. Oh, yeah, reality. There, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Being, just being honest. I, I just, I, as much as I like to dance and as much as I love to dance, as far as it being a, a you know, I, I was like, oh, it's a gamble if you marry rich and, you know, (laughs) if you marry at all, you know, so I didn't want to depend on that. Um, But like I said, as a kid, I always grew up knowing that that's that's something that I wanted to do. Why I chose mortuary science, I don't know. I wasn't like killing cats or anything. So, I mean, I wasn't into anything weird like that. If Um, you were, I'm not judging. Oh, no, it's okay. okay. (laughs) But no, it it is. That is very different. But dying is dying is part of uh <laughs> of living and that you plenty of job security going yeah. into that field I, I think that was part of it too mm-hmm. uh thinking about the job security of it i always knew whatever i wanted to do that it was going to be something that uh would be a job that'll never go away and so that was always something that i thought about even as a small child growing up that that's what i wanted to do i wanted to do something that i knew would always be relevant and um, always be a demand for right yeah well and also but the once you started working at the uh, intern at the medical examiner, can you describe how that how that went for you starting off of seeing all the I mean death and and just you see you see the aftermath of violence, mm-hmm. right? Can you kind of describe to the listener how that went for you starting off? Um, starting off at first, I I didn't know how I was going to be. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what being what touching death was like. I didn't know what um, what seeing someone in their moment of death, what that was like. Um, 
And it's just breathtaking. To see someone in their moments of death, like to see someone that's there, um, that died, however they died, is one of those things that you can't take for granted. Because I became very interested in how that person lived when I saw how they died. And so for me, an autopsy, looking at the person, yeah, it's a little bit gruesome. You're using, you know, saws and you're cutting diaphragms and skulls and bones and you hear it's it's very auditory so you hear these sounds but it's also quiet and so um while doing them it was very um surreal because you had this person who was once a person somebody's loved one right there and somebody's child yeah somebody's child and you're you're manipulating and mutilating basically this person's body um, just to find out how they died but their family wants answers so you have a duty to do so and so I think um, for me it was I became so much more interested in how the person lived the investigations for me took too long and that's really kind of what brought me into police work um, because I wanted to know more about how did you get here I saw people who committed suicide. One lady, I remember, she had died from inhalation of uh, too many chemicals. One guy, he drowned. You know, I saw all these different states. One child was born with spina bifida. And so I saw these different things that made me realize that, and I, I say this now with being a homicide, death puts life into perspective. And so with seeing that, with seeing so much death, with seeing so much, um, with seeing so much of how people were at that moment, and I think in the back of my head, I wonder if this person would have chosen to die this way or would have wanted to die this way. Like, what is their story? And so I became so much more interested in that, that, um, one day it was an officer who worked Plano PD and a good friend of his was there. He had committed suicide. He had put a gun in his mouth and in a parking lot in um, one of the movie theaters out there in in, uh, Plano. And so his friend is there on the table and he comes in and he's, he's just standing there, you know, and he's looking at his friend. Of course he's an officer. He has to get death, give a death notification to his friend's family that he had just found his friend that he grew up with, you know, in this state. And so I was standing there talking to him and I just kind of looked at him and I said, "Uh, you need a moment? He said, yeah, I think I do. And so he sat there and he looked at his friend and I'm tearing up because at that moment, that's when I realized I'm more concerned about people living and not people dying, even though I kind of came full circle and I work homicide. Um, how did somebody get there? Like life in a whole, like I really care about how that happened. How did we get here? How did you get there? That's what's more important for me, you know? Um, and after 
I remember that officer asked me, he said, have you ever thought about going into investigations, like going into police work? I was like, absolutely not. And so he says, uh, he, you know, he had gathered his bearings and he says, you should. And so maybe two years later, it was a commercial playing on the radio talking about joining Dallas Police Department. And at the time I had actually gotten a corporate job, something I was totally against um, working like it was a medical job, but it was a, a corporate, very, very corporate job. And I told myself, I said, a year from the day that I start this job, I will be gone. And the day I started that job, a year later, I was starting the police academy. How old were you? 24. Yeah. So you had you had interactions with detectives and when you were working at the ME's office, mm-hmm. right? How did that how was that for you? As far did that lead you to the path of DPD? You think interacting with them and seeing investigations put together and how they work? No, cuz I really didn't get to see in depth how okay. the investigations worked on their end. Um I just knew for me that I had this this real affinity for learning more about the individual, mm-hmm. learning why they got there, learning how they got there, learning what their life was like before. Uh, so that, to me, I think is what kind of pushed me over the edge a little bit to want to become a police officer. Now, everything else in between, of course, you know, the excitement, the, all the things you get to do as soon as you're out of the academy, um, weren't necessarily what I thought would be my path into investigations because I really enjoyed it. Once I was in it, I was like, oh, I like this. You know, I'm out here and it's all exciting and the adrenaline rush. Um, And so that was exciting, too. And that was my time on the streets. Um, Southwest Dallas. Southwest, yeah. Same area I grew up in. Same area I patrolled. Do you feel like that was tougher or would it have been easier to go work somewhere else? Or was it easier to do it where you grew up? Geographically, yeah, it was easier for me to do it where I grew up. Um, I knew a lot of people there. I actually did Vice. I worked with Vice one time over there. And so it wasn't easy to do the prostitution thing over there because everyone knew my parents. And I remember I was walking up Camp Wisdom one day and this guy was like, I'm going to tell your dad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so the listeners, they've never heard about these kind of little. I know, I know the process and, yeah. and these prostitution. Can you kind of describe what you had to do on these things? Oh, it was so gross. Yeah, I, I, my hats off to people who work vice because I I just couldn't do it. I mean, um, there's some it, people who enjoy it. Oh, it's some people who love it. Like yeah. they love getting dirty. Sickos. They yeah, they love being out there and. You know, I, I, I just couldn't do it. And I, I guess I couldn't do it because I saw doctors, I saw lawyers. One guy pulled up, he had a picture of his family on the dashboard. And I'm just sitting here thinking, your poor wife and kids has no clue. So what are you doing? You're hanging out on the street corner and walking down the yeah, strip? Yeah, just walking and, down the strip. Yeah, and just yeah. waiting for someone to holler at yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember one day, this older guy tried to tell this younger guy, he was like, nope, not that one. Nope, nope, she's clean. She's clean, not that one. And so he he calls me over there. He was like, all I have is a dime bag and a two-piece. I was like, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I have been resorted to a two-piece <laughs> and a pepper Wow! with did, a bag of wheat. 
You gotta have the pepper though. Gotta yeah, have the pepper, yeah. I guess. He could have at least throw in a honey biscuit or something. Yeah. <laughs> You're worth way more than that. <laughs> at that least I thought. I was like, a, dang. Well, I couldn't even get a half of a chicken yeah. breast or something. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So. so what what did you enjoy most? You said the excitement, the adrenaline rush. What 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 got you going and, and working the streets and what did you originally get in the thought process of how it was going to be to what it actually was? I didn't know what to expect. Uh, being honest, I really didn't know what to expect. My dad was totally against it. You know, he had worked DEA in the early days of DEA and really? he had gotten out oh, of boy. it. Yeah. And he was like, I want you to never go into law enforcement. And the day I came and told him I was going to law enforcement, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. And, um, and, and so, but once I graduated the Academy, of course, he was, he was very proud of me nonetheless. Um, but for me, I was always an adrenaline junkie anyway. I wanted to race cars. I wanted to do all these things, you know. You had all that at Southwest. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, mm. this is true. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. So every day for me was a new experience and I went into it with that, with that mindset that every day is a new experience. Um, and I think it was a little more comfortable for me, you know, to your question, because I was in a community I grew up in. And so with knowing the streets, knowing the areas that are the worst, knowing where hooks, you know, tuck and, and, and hide things and where they go strip cars and all of these different things. I knew those things already. You knew so, your way around the creek. Yeah, I knew my Exactly. I knew my way around the creek. So I knew where to go look for everything. And so. Bertie Alexander uh, gangsters over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Did you have any mentors at Southwest that kind of helped you along, you looked up to? You know, I won't say mentors per se, mm-hmm. but I had people who who really took me under their wing and was like, hey, look, this is the way you do these things. You know, um, I, I think when it comes to mentorship, I think all of us have a level of mentorship in us if other people will be accepting to that. Um, and so I. I looked at everyone. I looked at everything that everyone did that was senior to me, uh, whether they were a, just a single, uh, I mean, a, a senior PO or corporal or, sen- or sergeant or whomever. Um, if that individual had something that I thought was valuable, uh, regardless, and they didn't even have to be senior to me. They could have been someone who was, you know, same at level with me, but had a little bit more life experience. And so I didn't take that for granted. You know, I, I looked at those individuals, um, I had some really great sergeants. I had some, I had really great trainers. Uh, and even those who weren't so great, you know, I still learned something from them. I, I, I learned how not to be. Yeah. Um, I, I learned what more I needed to do to do this job efficiently. Um, and so did I do it perfectly? Absolutely not. I don't know anyone who has or does. And, um, but I really appreciated my experience that I had uh, in patrol. And I always tell people, I keep a uniform that fits because any of us can go back to patrol any day. You never day. know. Yeah, you never it know. It happened any day. Yeah, it could. It really could. Our uniforms have changed drastically since we hired yes, on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, we've got class C's now. Even. I know. Class B's and that. C's. And yeah. C's people and only wear their class A's for funerals and right. court. Mm-hmm. Or I don't even know if they wear them to court anymore. I, I don't no, think so. I think they can wear class B's now to oh, court, boy. too. Yeah. yeah. We used to jump fences, chase mm-hmm. bad guys. and Wear those little mm-hmm. silver buttons that popped off every time. Yeah. Yeah. Dig yeah. through nasty cars. Yeah. 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 Keep a Ziploc bag of all those buttons for when they pop off <laughs> yeah. and replace them. <laughs> and you always lose the little DVDs for your car. Always. Break off. So you promote a senior corporal and I want to get into child ex- exploitation what you applied for that what 
how'd that go? I want you to explain that unit to the listener because we've never talked about that unit on this podcast. Okay. What the, what the what that entire investigative unit uh, actually does. So, how I met Byron Fassett was that he was starting that unit, and when he was starting that unit, he came out to Southwest and he was like, "Does anybody want to help us look for child for teen prostitutes?" I used to raise my hand for everything because I just didn't know. You know, I, I wanted to learn something new. So I was like, sure, I'll go out there and do it. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so it was it was just before uh, I took the senior corporal test. And I was going out there and, you know, looking, helping look for these girls and, and young boys. And he says, uh, after I had taken a test, and I was still waiting on my scores. And he was saying, he said, uh, well, if you promote, he was like, I have an opening coming up. I'd never thought about it. I'd never thought about working in that field at all. Like it never, ever crossed my mind. And um, where where did you think you might end up after patrol? Um, I don't know. Honestly, I didn't see past patrol. You're just living the dream at the time. I was just living yeah. the dream. I didn't see past patrol. I, I didn't have... Um, I don't think I had any like true ambitions to do anything great because I was still learning. Mm-hmm. I knew I didn't know a lot. I, in my opinion, I was like, I still don't know a lot, but I just felt like I was learning so much and it was so much coming at me every day that I was like, I'm never going to get it all, you know, and I still haven't gotten it all, you know? And so I just, um, I didn't think past that. That's crazy. Yeah. Cause looking at your resume, it looks like you were destined for where you're at now and, and that you methodically went step by step to break that down. I mean, even all the way back to your elementary school days of understanding what you wanted to do. Ironically, homicide came. Um, they had asked me to go before I had applied a couple of times and didn't get it. And I was really liking where I was. Um, I was in the, I had gone back to ICAC and, and, um, uh, sex offenders. I had the sex offender registration and sex offender apprehension and ICAC all at the same time. And that fairly that was a fairly new unit as well, right? Um, was I, ICAC was just getting going? No, too? ICAC was there. Was already established. Yeah. So, so Byron Fast he's he started Child X. Child X. Okay. He started um, ICAC and then sex One, offender. Maybe you can explain what ICAC is for people listening. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just do that. Yeah. No, no, you're We're, good. We all do that. No, because yeah. we, it's like we talk about, I have a lot of, I have a lot of civilians that listen to this and oh, they, they'll let me know. They'll be writing, they'll be writing in saying, hey, tell us what this acronym means because something that's yeah. common for us, yeah. they don't know yeah. it. See, like CIT, like the CIT call that Sarge uh, mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that's like a mental health call. Right. Somebody's uh, acting, you know, have mental issues out in the street. They're now called a CIT calls. Right. So yeah. it's crisis inter- intervention right. calls. So. Maybe you can even back up to the child X, like explain what you were doing. Yes. There. Yeah. Talk yeah. about this whole unit. episode over yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stop derailing. With, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so child X, it was a yeah. it was, facet. I know facet. He's great dude. He yeah. actually worked out there in 24 and Rockwall. Mm-hmm. Great guy. But he started this and he wanted you to be a part of it from the get go. Yeah. Him and Bill Walsh started this. Uh, okay. Bill Walsh is over the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center. Mm-hmm. So they both started it. And um, their their mission was to work with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And so in that, what they did was they created the Child Exploitation Unit. And from that branched off the Internet Crimes Against Children, or ICAC mm-hmm. as we know it. And so um, he had asked me to come and work there. And well, he asked me to apply. And so I applied for it. Didn't think I would get it. I'm like, I'm totally green off the street. Don't know anything. 
Um, and so I even asked him later, you know, why, why was I chosen? He was like, well, you, you would come out and help and do the work. You showed an interest. And so um, that unit was, it, it was an experience. You know, you get to see children. Children are extremely resilient, um, especially, especially when you're talking about children who have been sexually abused. So a lot of the children and child exploitation, the difference in child exploitation and child abuse, child abuse deals with families and children being sexually abused. Child exploitation, we deal with non-familial. And so it was um, with that, I think some of the hardest interviews I've ever watched are the forensic interviews with some of those children who were so incredibly resilient, who showed very little emotion around the tragedy that had happened to them. And they're able to just sit there and talk about it as if it's so, you know, just a very matter of factual thing. And so from that, you know, people talk about compartmentalization and compartmentalization when you're dealing with children, the most vulnerable individuals, the ones that as adults, we think we're supposed to protect, um, and you sit there and you listen to a child talk about the worst thing that you can only imagine happening to them in a manner that is almost like you and I just having this simple conversation. They would sit there and talk about it just like that. Maybe they'll doodle. Maybe they'll play with a the toy. They're doing something very childlike. And they're telling you this story that is incredibly grown up. You know, it is incredibly adult. Everything about it is something that you wouldn't even imagine on your worst day, you know, that could happen. And so um, I grew up a lot in that because those those kids made me grow up because I had to be able to sit there and listen to that story without without my whole entire mindset on society changing. And in a way, it kind of did, um, because I had just had my first child when I got there. So I was going to ask if you yeah, had a child. I had just had my first son. And um, so for me, that became, it, it was almost to the point for a moment, he couldn't go visit family alone. He couldn't go, he couldn't go to cousins. He couldn't go to anyone and, not without me there or without his dad there um, because it was so fresh in my mind, all of these stories, everything about these children was so fresh in my mind. Um, and the interviews with the suspects, it is so incredibly weird to sit there and speak to someone and you talk to them and they have this attraction for a child just as significant as one of us having an attraction for an adult. And they didn't understand what was wrong with that. That just blew my mind. That completely blew my mind. And I'll never forget an interview once. And this guy was talking about this little girl. She was five years old. And he was saying how she came on to him. And how she provoked him because she was wearing just a t-shirt and her underwear. The same thing you see every little girl in when she goes to bed. She's just wearing her little Cinderella nightgown t-shirt and her underwear that's completely innocent to the rest of us. And to that individual, 
she was seducing him. How hard hard was it for you to process this? Starting off, you're you're getting all this, and you have a new child. How hard was it for you going home at night to compartmentalize yourself? It was very hard in the beginning. Like I said, um, I had my reservations about everyone in the beginning, and I think that the thing that helped me get through it was in turn also seeing just how resilient those children were. So in the back of my mind, I kind of thought about if they can deal with this now at the age of whatever, then let me be the adult and meet them where they are. Because these children, most of them were not, they didn't have a victim mindset. And to me, that was incredible. Like, you got these little kids. They didn't have a victim mindset. Like, you would have the worst of the worst happening to some of these small children. But then you have some people where it was just a touch or it was just a unwanted contact. And they would have the worst breakdown, you know, in the room. And I don't know if it was because they were thinking about what could have happened or just how it made them feel in that moment. But then when you talk to the children who were actually – They had to deal with the penetration. They had to deal with the constant, you know, sexual assaults. Those children were incredible. Well, they learned survival skills themselves. Absolutely. They had to. That was their reality. What we hear about these stories and then we can't imagine it. That is their reality. Mm -hmm. So you you go from child exploitations, you go to Internet Crimes against children, yes. ICAC is what it's called. And we're actually going to have uh, Detective um, Godwin on from Garland PD. He's been doing it 18 oh, years. and, I and know that one. Yeah. And he's going to come in and talk about yeah. what the whole episode is going to be about that. I want to raise awareness, too, uh, for a lot of um, just individuals and also mm-hmm. just parents out there of uh, what to uh, avoid. So how was that transition going from child exploitation, extremely heavy, mm-hmm. uh, depressing unit, to go to another one that's similar but different? It was harder going to ICAC. And the reason it was harder. um, Visual? Not only visual. In child exploitation, I knew my victim. In child exploitation, I was able to get justice for my victim that I knew, someone I touched. In ICAC, I have no idea if that child was getting any justice. I have no idea if that child is being trafficked right now. I have no idea if that child is even still alive. So I think for me it was harder. It was much harder going over to ICAC. And I didn't even realize that until after. Um, I had to do therapy after, after ICAC. What about ICAC? I mean, you just talked about that all the unknowns that you had to deal with and juggle. And yeah. um, Are there some cases if you can talk about them yeah, that, that stuck with you. I never forget one. You see my eyes swelling. One thing we never did was turn the audio up when we received the videos. And there's a reason for that. I'll never forget the one where it was a infant. That infant child was being sodomized. 
they had this child tied up by its legs, hanging upside down. While someone, this woman, beat this child with a whip and stuffed ice cubes in her vagina. I accidentally had the volume on that day. And all you hear are the excruciating screams of this baby. I'll never forget that. Never. Never. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. And I, and I can't imagine working that unit. And I've, I've, I know a lot of the detectives that were over there. Um, and I believe that the shelf life or being that exposed to that kind of just humanity and, yeah. and, and um, it, it has to be a short lived the, the uh, volume process. you're dealing with too. I yeah. mean, I, I, my guess would child X would be a little different where you're working on a case and maybe you're working on one incident or several with one child, yeah. but the amount of volume you get in ICAC. And it has gotten worse. I think last year they may have gotten like 24,000, cases or 24,000 um and, and and when i say cases i'm i'm just talking about um you know you have one case may have a terabyte of images in it yes and then once again speaking to the volume yeah yeah so well, like you said one incident could have 5,000 images absolutely 5,000 videos mm-hmm. yeah the, well that yeah that crime i <laughs> i actually Actually, might get you back in here for sure. Godwin's episode. Yeah. Uh, That'd be great perspective. Oh, yes, yeah. for yeah, he he is. You know, he's a, he's an expert at it. Yeah, and, Tony has done it for years. Yes, and uh, almost two decades of mm-hmm. that. And um, yeah, we'll have to get you back for that one if yeah, you're up for absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you had to go see a therapy after that. I did. Was that the first time you've actually, because of the because of something you experienced on this job, to go? Yeah. And seek counseling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it, it was more so because I couldn't get that out of my head. I could not get that image out of my head. I could not get that child's screams out of my head. Um, and, you know, people say, how can you look at so much death? How can you see? Because majority of what I see are adults who are dead, right? Um, with the exception of a few children. But with that, I was like, this child is alive. Like this, this is happening. This is really happening. I can't reach in this computer screen and get this child out of there. I, I can't get them out of that situation. And and it was actually in another country at that, which bothered me even more because now you try to do an Interpol, you know, um, notification, and it goes nowhere. You know, it's I have no jurisdiction in Taiwan or I have no jurisdiction in the Netherlands. Um, but that started to bother me. You know, it started to bother me that I I don't know if this person is getting justice. All I know is that the individual who's trading these images or who's trading these videos, that's who I'm going after. This may not even be the perpetrator. More than likely it's not unless it's something that is self-produced. We rarely ever found someone who did self-production. Um, there were a few, but for the most part, we didn't find very many people who self-produced. Well, yeah. So what about these people then who are trading then? 
But as far as like a profile of them and their mindset, you talked about Child X where some of these people had the attraction towards kids Mm -hmm. and it was justified in their mind. What's the difference in someone who's involved in trading digital uh, materials of kids? It's not much difference. Okay. Yeah, it's it's not much difference. Um, In their mind, it is, though. You'll even talk to some people who trade images and they feel almost like they are better than a person who actually produced it or made it. Yeah, Yeah. produced or who actually sexually assaults children. But it's only a matter of time because you are what you see. You are what you continue to watch. So um, that individual who continues to watch child porn at some point will probably, you know, they'll, they'll probably assault a child at some point if they have the, yeah, yeah it escalates if they have the opportunity they'll likely do so um but some people think it's less of a crime because i'm only looking at images i don't understand that mindset they rationalize it themselves they do they, it's like it's like some even people with a certain type of like narcissism they, right. they do rationalize themselves they're not that bad or yeah how long did you stay there in that unit I was there only a year before I promoted mm-hmm. out of ICAC. Okay. Um, I, I think that was about all I could take as far as looking at those images all the time. And good yeah. for you um, for recognizing that. Yeah, yeah, I had to. And I being had to a new parent. That. Yeah, yeah, I did. So you promote to sergeant, mm-hmm. and you go back out on the streets for a brief time, and then yeah. you go to... Public integrity. Another unit we have not talked about on this. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know you were in PIU. Oh, yeah. That's I when was. I first that's when I first met you. Came yeah. out and taught a class and you're a sergeant in mm-hmm. PIU. I'd seen you but actually met you and you yeah. were teaching something in core. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. I think it was procedural justice. It was, yeah. yes. You were you were out teaching that. You know what you're missing in here is the uh RBT instructor. I didn't get to be an RBT instructor. I thought you were. Or you're coming out I did just PVOC. helping. I know you did PVOC. Yeah. I thought you were out there helping. Oh, I did. I used to get shot all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we, we, yeah, we, yeah. Navarro and, yes. and Winslow. Yeah. That's how I met yeah. Jessica. Yeah. Was yeah. Years is, ago, RBT. Yeah, that yeah. is. And then yeah. you disappeared. I, well, and I wondered yeah. where you were. And now I'm looking at this sheet and I see where you disappeared too. <laughs> you disappeared to all these places I couldn't go. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't want to go, yeah. You, you literally, I mean, we're, we're going to get, by the end of this episode, we're going to talk about all of the ponds that you've dipped your toe in yeah. this department and all this experience you've gathered because it's and you still got more to go obviously yeah but public integrity again for the listener everybody here knows what it is can you kind of tell the listener what what that unit is so that unit is it's like you police the police um, basically if there is any type of criminal activity or anything that they believe is criminal that's happening uh, within for us, we handled city workers. Anything below city hall level, um, code enforcement. Yeah, code enforcement. Yeah. Um, if they were like a, you know, sanitation workers, water company, all of that, we did all of those, including police. And um, we used to do the investigations. So if there were any criminal um, offenses that were brought to our attention. Then we investigated them. Now, you were internal affairs also, right? Yes. So explain the difference between those two. So internal affairs is more administrative. Uh, they deal with the administrative aspects of everything. And they have like, um, you, you know, you look at general order violations, you look at um, CCP violations, things like that. Um, in public integrity, you're actually looking at the penal code, Texas penal code, and looking at offenses there. 
as it, usually the, the order is it goes, if it's criminal, then it goes from PIU down to IED. Um, sometimes it's reversed. Sometimes some things are brought to IED's attention and they feel it should rise to the level of something criminal and they'll take it to PIU. Um, they're supposed to work synonymously. And, um, you know, they'll they'll have, you know, do their investigations. But at the same time, they're not, their investigations are not supposed to have the same impact. Like they're not supposed to impact each other, rather. Yeah, one's administrative, one's just straight, strictly criminal. Yes. So you go from investigating criminal cases of, of uh, child crimes mm-hmm. to investigating potentially bad actor police officers or yeah. city workers of any kind. And how was that a big of an adjustment for you doing that? It is totally so, one end of the spectrum. Yeah. So what's right is right and wrong is wrong. Um, and sometimes investigations were necessary. Um, some people who did wrong, they they got what they, you know, what, what came of it. Um, there were cases where there were some things that were not what was originally thought. And so, you know, with those cases, we had to do what was right with those as well. Um, the objective was not to put anyone in jail. Nobody wants to put their colleague in handcuffs, you know, did I have to do it? Yes, I did. Um, was it something that I felt like I was betraying the badge by doing? No. They were betraying the badge by doing what they were doing. Yeah. So I didn't have a real conscience around that if it was really something that I felt was, was a bad thing. Um, but I'm always for the justice of it. And if someone didn't do anything, then I feel like there should be a justice, um, that they receive as well. If they do something wrong, then they should go to jail. I mean, we're police officers. We're human. We make mistakes. Um, some mistakes are worse than others, but you should know better doing this job. Uh, what's criminal and what's not, and you shouldn't want to indulge in that. And, and that's just the bottom line. And so I think that's what made it easy for me to do the job. Um, I used to joke around because people would always say, oh, even when I was gone, oh, PIU is here, PIU is here. I'm like, that was three years ago. <laughs> that means you're doing something wrong. Yeah. That's the title of this episode, PIU is here. Right. <laughs> you're gone. Long and I've, I've seen everything you've ever done wrong. Yeah. yeah. Right. What are some of the myths versus facts when it comes to that unit? I mean, even from our old department, because there is a pucker factor when oh, yeah. PIU yeah. is mentioned. Yeah, I, I think the myths of that – is that um, people really believe that you are like you become like this all seeing eye, and you have all of these special investigative tools that the rest of the department doesn't have access to? Oh, it's so contrary to that. You don't. <laughs> you really don't. Um, it, you you really have to work at what you do to get information, especially when you're talking about your peers. You know, the thing for me was I had to hide in plain sight. And hiding in plain sight is one of those things where people will always kind of be a little skeptical, like, is she working or is she working? Right. <laughs> you know, so they never really knew uh, what what my objective was for being somewhere. Well, one thing you got to consider, too, is like if you're following somebody or you're actually, as you put it, hiding in plain sight, you, you never know who knows you or they, they've right. heard of you. They've seen you around mm-hmm. and and 
hell, even Danny and I were doing a surveillance school one time, and Danny was at North Park Mall. I knew you were going to bring this up. Yes. <laughs> Danny's sitting there. He's like, follow me. Mm-hmm. And I did it just to F with him. I was, but, going, I was going through the school, and he yeah. was helping teach. Yeah. Oh, so okay. I come up, okay. and, and, and the and the scenario was following a, a, a dirty cop, mm-hmm. you know? And, and uh, so I come up to him. I go, hey, don't you work at Southeast? And he kind of literally had to come up with something on the fly. Yeah. Of, oh, yeah, I was just here because I, I, I just that wasn't even part of the scenario. I just did it to mess with me, but also just throw a monkey wrench. I knew he could handle yeah. it too, but you know, that's something you have to be aware of. And yeah. also, you're dealing with somebody who already has a suspicious mind and right. understands investigations at some level mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. and they m- might be more cautious than than a, a, a non police criminal yeah right yeah it's it's a lot harder when you're dealing with police they know they know all the tools you have yeah because they have access to them too you know um they they know the strategies you use because they probably learned them you know it's just so many things you had to be creative you had to be really innovative um on when you're trying to investigate another officer and especially in something like that where you're trying to follow someone um because it became very obvious um you know even though you may not want it to be, sometimes it, it kind of is. And so, like you, my thing was was that I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm not going to really make it look like I'm working. But if I have an investigation, I'm just going to do it, you know. And um, so it became, um, for me, it be, it kind of became, it was another challenge. You know, it was another challenge for me. It was another another thing to learn to get through and to also make sure that I was doing it with the best of integrity and the best of intentions and to make sure, because this can disrupt someone's life. Yeah. And the last thing that I wanted to do was disrupt someone's life and put them in a situation that I have to look them in the eye later on. And I want to know that when I deal with someone, especially one of my coworkers, that I'm doing it with the best of integrity and the best of intentions and they understand that I'm just doing my job. That's it. But one of the worst types of criminals is the police officer who, who betrays everything that they stand for. Right. So there's, there's a lot of honor in that position. Yeah. But again, the, the pressure that comes with it, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something you, you seek more than you run from. Yeah. I mean, and there was also political pressure with some of the, some of the decisions that were made. Um, Some of the decisions came from above, above the chief, you know? And so when you have the DA's office and you have other people involved in your investigations, uh, it becomes very complicated and you have to decide for yourself, okay, this is my investigation. This is what I'm doing. Um, this is the evidence that I have. Can I, should I present a case that I'm not comfortable with? And that became the issue. That became the issue. You know, presenting a case that I'm not quite sure I have everything that I, I feel comfortable with presenting. Um, but when you have those political pressures, you have to be, it's a very delicate situation in how you relay that to your superiors. Hey, I don't have enough. This is what I have. Legally, I do not have enough to do what you're wanting me to do. And so I have to be very cautious about that. Luckily, you know, the um, our chain at the time was, was very, um, they would listen. They would, they would consider all things. 
and we would talk to the DA's office. And if there was something that they felt was something that we needed to go ahead and move forward with, then we did. And I learned from being in child exploitation, you can't be attached to the outcome because the outcome is not yours to decide. You present a fair case with the facts. You present everything that you have. If it goes to the grand jury, the jurors decide what happens with that. And it's just it's just what happens with that, you know. Well, that's that's theoretically the standard for any criminal case. Right. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of times non-police, non-public integrity, uh, how you deal with it now in homicide. Yeah. You know somebody did it. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of circumstantial evidence that point directly to them, but you just know from, you know, just having a gut feeling or having a, a, a view of a certain portion of the evidence, all you could obtain at the time, you know they did it. Yeah. You just, from a prosecutorial standpoint, getting it done and getting it past that threshold mm-hmm. is sometimes you just can't make it happen. Yeah. And yeah. that's the same thing you have. I'm sure you encountered in public integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Cause it's not, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Yeah. And that's the standard for any criminal investigation. Right. Yeah. You're obviously a competitor. Yes. Do you actually believe that that stuff is outside of your control or is that something that just grinds it? Cause personally, I'll say it all day long, but I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to win this. Like this is me versus them yeah. in everything in life. Right. Yeah. But there's solace and, and I can appreciate the, the mindset of it's really not in my control, mm-hmm. but not in my world. Like I, yeah. I want to control everything. And so yeah. letting go of, of the control of it and saying it is up to somebody else, how it comes out. That's really difficult for me. Is that something that, that you struggle with or is it just peace yes. of mind? Yeah. Yes. And no, um, so I I went through this phase where, and there were only two cases I remember my entire time in child exploitation that I did not win. And those two cases, uh, one of which was, it was a grand jury decision. And that decision bothered me to no end. I went home that day and I used to box and I remember going to the boxing gym and boxing bare knuckle until my, my knuckles were bloody because I was that frustrated because I, at that point, felt like I had lost control. Like I felt like I had lost control of winning my cases. I presented a great case and I had a confession. I had everything. And it was the grand jury's decision. They chose not to prosecute for whatever reason. And my victim was re-victimized by the same individual once again. Yeah, shocking. Yeah. And she was pregnant at 14, pregnant again at 15 by the same individual. Um, So with that, yes, control is a thing that I have to be very cautious about uh, for myself, for my own personal psyche. Um, I'm going to throw this out there. It has, it's, this is the ultimate let go. So for my 35th birthday, I went to skydive and I didn't think I was going to get to skydive because it stormed all day. And I sat there and I told the man, I said, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to do this. We are going to make this happen. And so he was like, well, if it continues to lighten, you know, lightning, we can't do this. And I'm just sitting here thinking, yeah, I really don't want to get struck by lightning while we do this. But, you know, I want, I want this to happen. I want to do this. Right. So 
the most liberating feeling was to skydive through a rain cloud. You're in no control of anything, but yet you feel in control of everything. Like in that moment, I had no control of anything at all. I knew I didn't. I knew I had no control. I had no control of the parachute open. I had no, I, I was in it. I was free falling, you know? And I made up my mind in that moment, control what you can control. The things you can't control, do whatever it takes to make it work for you. And so that's what I did for myself, you know? And that, that was one of those realizations, an aha moment. You know, I was, like I said, I was falling through a cloud. Uh, I felt the raindrops on me. I felt all of these different things. And I, I felt it was like this new lease on life. It was so invigorating. I had no idea if lightning was going to come strike my ass. <laughs> I totally didn't because I'm in the middle of this rain cloud and I forced these people to take me up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so, you know, that to me in that moment right then and there at 35 years old, I had a moment where I realized where controlling, being in control all the time, sometimes is not as important as being in control of yourself. Yes. If you can be in control of yourself, then that's the only thing you need to be able to control. And that is having ultimate control in the end. Absolutely. Yeah. You're speaking Danny's language. She has, been, she has been the whole hour. Oh, I know. So oh, no. I've, I've, been all watching, way back to, I've been watching you smile and shake your head. Yes. Yeah. And it, and you we have what? a lot more in common than, than she probably knows. She probably doesn't know my background. Oh, and stuff, you, but yeah. yeah, literally. Probably it's, Seriously. it's really weird to sit here and, and watch you two just fall in love mm-hmm. right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, no, I, I, I already did that myself. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I told you she left and disappeared, Sorry. and I was so sad. I'm like, where does Sorry. this person disappear Sorry, to? Emily, to break this news to you. <laughs> so, you you get out of public integrity and you go to where? I went to internal affairs. Okay. Yeah. Which we've already talked about. You go from criminal side yeah. of investigating, then you go to, it's more administration. Yes. And that's there, that, that can be something as far as an officer violating small policies, mm-hmm. not marking out, et cetera, and then, yeah. or use of force. Uh, how did you fit in? To that unit when you're going from public integrity to, to IED? I don't know if I did ever fit in. Yeah. Um, because, like Good. I said, I wanted to hear that. <laughs> Daddy's back in love. He was on the fence there. I, I, you know, it for, for me, we all have messed up. We probably all have a general orders that is in effect today because of something that we did. Or should be. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so. There, because it was administrative, I took a lot of things into consideration because I looked at how long an officer had been on. I looked at life experience. I, I looked at um, training, you know, all these different things that they had experienced in life. And one thing when I used to bring someone in for an interview, I kind of like to know those things about that person before I started to go into what we're talking about. Probably it was out of my scope and what shouldn't have done it, but... Um, it was important to me to know what was your mindset when you were doing whatever you were doing? Because before I sit here and I say, I'm going to hand you this discipline and you're going to get this slap on the wrist, you know, or get terminated or whatever the case may be. Um, I wanted to know in that moment, 
What did you see? What did you hear? What did you smell? I wanted to know all the sensory things about what was going on with an individual before whatever happened, happened. And so some people would like really like get into the thick of it and say, you know, and of course people come, you go to ID, you're already apprehensive, you know, they're going to screw me over, you know, that's kind of the mindset. And so, um, I think because I had a relationship with a lot of the attorneys from PIU, um, when they would bring someone in, we would have a conversation and, and they would tell me their side. And I told them, hey, this is what I have. You all tell me what you have and we'll meet in the middle. And so um, there were a lot of times where I would probably fight a little bit harder for people, probably more than somebody else would on on the other end. And it was just because... I understand being human and I understand that we all make mistakes. And I understand that sometimes there are things that we think we see. There are things that we believe are happening because of our past experience or the lack thereof. And so um, all things considered is how I made my decisions uh, when it came to how I looked at my cases in internal affairs. And it wasn't always favorable of what you know they wanted the decision to be and and I would fight as hard as I could you know for an individual in in something that I wholeheartedly believe was a mistake um now of course there are some things that we need to learn from and and I would be very honest with people and say hey look you know this is a lesson this is a lesson but take it as such take it as a lesson take it as um a moment in time that you want to correct but since we can't go backwards, we just know not to do it moving forward. And so a lot of people, I, I did that because so many people had this mindset around internal affairs, like I said, and they become disgruntled. And when they become disgruntled about it, you know, we always talk about morale. Mm-hmm. No one can give you morale. I'm sorry. No one can affect your morale. Your morale is your choice. And I feel like a lot of people feel like the situations that they go through and the things that they have affects their morale. Well, you can choose to either be a happy individual going through those situations, or you can choose to, you know, be upset with the place where you have to come every day and earn your living. To me, who wants to live like that? You know, I I wouldn't want to live. That's a miserable life. So do you realize that you just basically said you do the same thing for internal investigations as you did for dead bodies? Like you wanted to know the history of all of it. Hmm. Yeah, I, you, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, say I, that I caught way. that too. Can't. No, I was really? thinking. I thought I fell asleep, and then I was like replaying <laughs> yeah, earlier in my yeah. mind. No, I was thinking the same thing. She literally really? is like looking at it from a, a obviously a, a, you're looking at the forest as opposed to just a tree. Yeah, right, which is in front of you. The all the other things that led that person up to that point of being in front of you, yeah. whether it was in the Emmy's office when you're early twenties or being an ID as a supervisor. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that peripherally can happen to somebody right. going on in personal life or, you know, dealing with a, a supervisor that's not you know good or just mm-hmm. making a mistake, as you put it, based on something they're experiencing. They've never experienced for and you can do something. You can have a great response to it, an awful response yeah. or somewhere in between because, right. you know, there's there's no not everything's black and white. Right. You can't just look at it as such. Mm-hmm. Yes. People violate a, a policy or. They screw up. Yeah, but there's a lot more to it than just. Right. That is interesting. 
I'm yeah. betting you're going to say the same thing here again in a minute when we get to where you're currently at and, <laughs> yeah. and every other stop. No, that's, that's, that's a great outlook too. I mean, to, to be able to, to separate what you're dealing with right here and look at that person as a, as an entire person. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people get stuck in, this is my job. This is what I'm going to do. And I need to knock this out. Yeah. But you take the time to actually understand the why about people also. I, I really like to experience people. Like I do. I like to experience people in the moment. I really like to experience people, which is kind of strange because when I'm away from people, I'm an introvert. And so, you know, but I really when I'm around people, I like to experience everything about an individual. I like to know what's going on with that person. And so um, it's really important because I remember things about people for years. Like I may not see anybody for years and I'll remember a small detail about them or I may remember they were going through something at a particular time and um to me I think that's what make people that's what makes humanity so important uh if we continue to do that and care for each other in that sense um life life has its challenges you know and we need each other to get through those challenges and I, I just believe that if in fact each individual learned to be genuine and authentic with each other um, and experience each other in that moment, I think levels of depression, um, anxiety, all of those things will be cut. Um, they'll still be there. They'll still exist because some individuals are predisposed to have those conditions. But I think that um, if we if we took the time to ask a genuine, how are you? And to give a genuine response of I'm doing whatever that is for that individual, then I think we'll start to have more, um, we'll start to have more authentic relationships with people. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, someone that you even know, you know, I, my, my favorite thing to do is go into a store and just speak to someone and ask how they're doing. I'll get in a entire life story you know or I'll get what's really going on with that person for that day because I just stop I'll stop and I'll really have that conversation with that individual no matter what's going on in my day um so yeah I, I just I like that I do have you read the book Lost Connections I have not oh, okay she yeah. wrote it should I yeah, yeah. <laughs> add, it, add it to your list yeah. I'll add it to my list okay it's going to be on my now. Hey, what, what what day do we actually meet for the Jessica Criddle fan club? Like, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I want, we're going to start one. Hey, wait, hey, ATL fans that have actually asked for her to be on, you're going to be extremely happy, and the ones that didn't ask, they're going to be even happier. We had this had this happen. Well, I, I'm flattered, and for everyone who asked me to be on, I really appreciate that. Well, we're not done yet. So you, <laughs> <laughs> we're not wrapping. Not, not a way to wrap. It's not a way. We're not wrapping shit up. Don't get ahead of yourself. So. Dealing with people and, and, and dealing with officers, sometimes you had to you had to spank. I mean, everybody yeah. needs to slap on the hand yeah. and say, okay, you screwed up. I'm gonna you have to have this punishment mm -hmm. because you earned this punishment. Did do you believe that as a supervisor and a leader that you know Kent and, and uh and Jessica, your sergeants, your supervisors, do you believe you should take a role as far as basically mentoring and guiding after that you're gonna you got it you got it it's like it's like with uh, raising a kid you mm -hmm. have to you have to uh discipline mm -hmm. but also you have to get them to learn what they did wrong 
Right. Did you did you find yourself doing that at all when you were in ID? Uh, yeah. No. You know, it was everything should be a teaching moment, uh, regardless of how heavy or minor the situation is. I think that um, it should be. You should look at it as a teaching moment, as opposed to you actually getting in trouble, so to say. Um, you know, a, a lesson. Uh, you know. A hardship is a lesson. It should be, no matter the magnitude of it. You have to condition yourself to understand how you want to come out of that. You know, it's just like the whole thing about morale. Do you want to be disgruntled or do you want to come out of this and be miserable? Or do you want to learn from this and build on it? Me personally, I would rather build on it. And, and I, I like to, when I do have those conversations with people, because don't get me wrong, discipline is necessary. It is extremely necessary. Especially in this profession. Yes, right? absolutely. It is necessary. But at the same time, you have to allow individuals to be human. And you have to let them know that, hey, yeah, this is happening. It'll pass. And you had better learn from it. Did you see a lot of recidivism? Like it? You know, the, the same officer doing the same infractions and they coming back? In internal affairs. Yeah. 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 Not so much in, in public integrity. Right. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself working in internal affairs? I learned how I wanted to supervise people. That's really what I learned. I learned how I wanted to mentor, train people. I learned what I wanted people to get out of experiencing working for me. I learned I learned what to tell people how they should do certain things um, or should not do certain things. Um, I think overall it it taught me about the type of leader I wanted to be. I think that's, honestly, I think that's really what internal affairs and public integrity taught me is really the type of leader, leadership um, that I wanted to portray. One thing I've always heard about you is how genuine and just how kind and fair, fairness and Jessica Criddle, that they're synonymous, right? Oh, that's, yes. And and from the different units that you've worked, investigating officers and city employees at a criminal level and then also an administrative level, to still have that re- maintain that reputation, that says a lot. It really does. And you know how the, you know how this department is. It says yeah. a lot about about you to still maintain that. Um, the way people describe you. Um. So you wrap it up in IED, mm-hmm. and. Can you tell the listeners where you work now? Now I'm in homicide. Okay. Um, I went to Internet Crimes and oh, you and went back so, to yeah. I okay. Went back there. So you yeah. you go back to Internet Crimes as a supervisor, mm-hmm. and who? That did, was an accident, though. Well, they, did they ask you, or did you want to? So I I applied for the sex offender uh, apprehension sergeant position. Is that the SOAP team? Yeah. Okay. For SOAP. And, of course, sex offender registration is up under that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I get there, and jokingly, I had put my name in the hat for <laughs> ICAC also. 
jokingly. It's jokingly. I, well, I can't well, see you well, so making jo- yeah, no, that let, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. So I put my name in the hat for Soap and ICAT because both openings opened at the same time. But the interview for Soap happened and the interview for ICAT hadn't happened yet. And so I got the Soap position. And so I took that position. And so my second day there, I think... Um, I'm standing there and I'm talking to some of my old buddies who were in ICAT because it's all in one room now. And they were like, oh, yeah, you should have, you know, we we want you to be the sergeant here at ICAT, too. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I had my name in the hat. And I was like, you know, I would love. I said it didn't matter to me. I just, you know, I really enjoyed crimes against children. So then at that moment, the lieutenant at the time walks out of the office and she says, you used to work here, right? I say, yes, ma'am. She says, oh, well, would you mind um, just kind of handling some of the ICAC stuff, you know, oh, for a while? Because, of course, it has the big grant, right? I said, sure. Of course, I I have a problem saying no. So I said, sure. And then two and a half years later, I still had it. <laughs> so I still had All that. responsibility. You were, yeah. yeah. So I was managing that grant, and then I had the sex offender apprehension. I had sex offender registration. And I had internet crime, so I had all mm. of those at one time. That's a lot. So it had expanded greatly mm-hmm. since you had worked there, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And, and Facet was gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who was the lieutenant? At the time, it was Carrie Wise. Okay. Yeah. So coming back to that unit as a supervisor, and that unit has evolved, and also just the – did the investigative techniques change much yeah. from whenever you were there, like as far as like – Dealing with more, da- I, I being up illegal. I didn't see all the data that y'all would have to have. Y'all just terabytes of yeah, digital, yeah, yeah. Uh, with with technology, of course, mm-hmm. everything just it, it blew up um, to a level that I I couldn't even imagine once I got back there. And um, you know, you're looking at like I said, so many gigabytes and terabytes of data, and and you know, you have the levels of individuals. When I was there, we were only getting a few thousand cases. I mean, when I left, I think the year that I left, uh, we had pulled over 10,000 cases with just three detectives. And so, you know, it was it it was overwhelming. It was extremely overwhelming and depressing. I mean, really, and Mm -hmm. depressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every day dealing with the worst. I I can't. The volume is just crazy. Well, you know, what makes me want the volume was always there more than I mean. Sure. But it, it just. It, more report be, people reporting more yeah. or become more aware because of or better tools coming along yeah. like mm-hmm. the funding yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, it was more awareness about it a about, lot more yeah. awareness you yeah. know the national center for missing and exploited children had a lot more they they put a lot more information out there and so yes you had a lot more people reporting you had a lot more people um unfortunately getting into it also um you know and then when you start thinking about, okay, now people are making sex tapes and you got all of this stuff out there. And, and so now you have just, everyone is completely inundated with sex by way of the internet. And so you had so much of this stuff that was coming up and, and that we were starting to see. And, and it was so much more readily available, I think, um, than it was when I first started doing it. Uh, of course, the, the internet came along when early 2000s yeah but then they think yeah. about even the iphones yeah how much that opened mm-hmm. up the internet for yeah. everyone yeah because so 
I think iPhones were like first generation. 2006 when, uh, yeah. was when they came out. Yeah, so they, they were like working on like first or second sorry, yeah. generation um, iPhones still when I was there. And nobody was really thinking about using an iPhone to trade porn. or You know, it was more, okay, we're going to do this over the internet. Um, one of those things, you had the chat rooms. You had the different forums and things like that. So that was more the way that they would trade everything that way uh, back then. Oh, you can get in any kind of way now, you know, and and that's what's so incredibly hard to really get a a grasp on um, because you can get it in so many different ways now. Um, It's just in a few years, I don't even know how, even with the technology that we have, how they're going to be able to keep up with the magnitude of child pornography Mm -hmm. that is out there right now. Well, that's depressing. I mean, you know, and also it's depressing from uh, prosecuting these type of crimes. Mm -hmm. How difficult is that? Because I see that I've seen the amount of evidence that's that's needed and the massive amounts of of evidence that you have to present, gather and then present and Mm -hmm. then get it over to the DA's office. So with prosecuting those cases, it it depends on the amount of data. It depends on if it's going to be a state case or if it's a case that uh, has enough evidence to go federal. And so working with, especially on the Internet Crimes Against Children side, a lot of those cases wind up going federally with um, HSI or uh, the FBI uh, just because those cases have so much data. And a lot of times if they're trading across state lines and things like that, then you're able to get the federal charge. And so... Um, on that level, it's not so hard to prosecute those cases. A lot of times with the child exploitation cases, I did not have a hard time prosecuting those either, uh, just simply because, like I said, you have your live victim there. You have someone that actually can get on the stand and testify to those. Um, and in most cases, people would take a plea. You know, those those guys, you know, they have a lot of courage when they're dealing with the children. But when it comes to them having to actually get in front of adults and tell what they did, then they don't have so much courage. Yeah. Well, they also don't want all of the facts to come out and, and you know, and yeah. cause everything's gonna, that you're gonna get a really good peek behind that curtain mm-hmm. of who they are as a person once yeah. the trial starts up. Yeah, absolutely. So how do, getting, getting back into that type of crime after you got out of, and you said it, it spurred you to go to counseling. Mm-hmm. Did you, when you got back into it and you had to be exposed to that, it, it's different from being a supervisor to being a detective uh, digging into yeah. it, but you still had to command several detectives and, and cases. How did that affect you? You had, you already had experience under your belt and then life experience too, as well. And then different experience through the department going back. Did you, did you have the same feelings when you kind of resurfaced when you left? When I went back, I totally had my supervisor's hat on. So at that point, my only concern was the mental health of my detectives. And so my biggest concern was, okay, how much are y'all being exposed to this? How much do you want to be exposed to this? I knew quite a few people that were there who had been there for a couple of years. And so um, it was really important to me to understand where they were mentally and psychologically when I came back. Um, And we would have conversations. I would bring them in my office and speak to them individually and ask them, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing with this content? How are you doing being exposed to this? Um, And this may seem strange, but 
I encourage them to start to take steps to move on from their unit. And um, one of my guys actually did. He, he, he had been there for quite a few years. He was one of the best, you know, one of the best in that industry. Um, I don't know if y'all remember Eric Wiest. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, now he's making like three times as much he's as me. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's really, really smart. And so um, he went on to move to, uh, he's working at cyber crimes now, I believe. And so, you know, that was always really important for for me um, to know how they were doing because I knew how I was when I was there. And so that was that the whole mental health aspect was extremely important for me. No, it is. And that and you're you experienced it as a detective. And then, you know, and thank God you didn't you, you, a year. Right. Internet mm-hmm. in ICAC. And then yeah. you and then that's when you promoted so that is really important, and and that is a unit now being a part of the new wellness unit. We we are well aware mm-hmm. of uh, of that unit and what they have to deal with, and and I'm glad. Kudos to you as a supervisor for making that making that a priority for that unit and yeah. how you've managed them and ran them. Yeah, some I, people are so immersed in it. Yeah, they may not see it or realize it themselves. Uh, you know, it was really important for me to also write into their SLP um, how important it was for them to have mental health. Um, time because that was I wish it was afforded to me and I don't think that it was not afforded to me I think it was just a matter of people not really being aware how important uh, mental health is and being um, just kind of being in the mode of work and it's like it's work you just you deal with work and especially with this being policing you know it was one of those things where it's just like okay it's it's policing you that's what we do you know you get over it and you keep moving on And so, um, but having worked there, having known what type of content I was exposed to, having known um, the psychological effects that it had on me, I was hyper aware of the people that worked for me um, and really wanted to know, you know, how are you doing? I need to know these things because I need to know if you need time off. I need to know if you, you need some time away from the job. I need to know if you need to transfer out, you know, don't just stay here just because it's days and weekends, you know, cause technically it's not, you're a detective. You, it's not just days and weekends. No. I know a lot of people think it's that way and it's really not, you know, these cases you take home, these are the worst kind of cases to take home, but you do, you have your families, you have your own children, you have all these different things that you're still trying to deal with in life and you're doing this job you know, of all jobs, you know, I, I used to talk to people in child abuse and I say, I don't know how you do that job. You know, you're dealing with dead children and all of that all the time. And this is why I'm in child exploitation, you know? And, and so, but it was because I didn't understand, you know, dealing with abused children, um, in that aspect, physically abused children in that aspect. Um, I, I thought I would be extremely angry and you just really have to know yourself. You know, I thought I would be angry at the parents for, you know, beating this child with, you know, a hammer or a hanger or, you know, whatever, you know, they beat the kid with. Um, I had to think about that, you know, and I, for some reason, was able to handle children being sexually abused. But I think it was not a matter of I handled it. It was a matter of, um, like I said, those children helped me get through that, you know, watching them deal with what they dealt with helped me get through that. And um, and getting the justice for them, that was one of the greatest feelings, you know. And so I really prided myself on on winning those cases because it was like, yeah, we did this, you know. And but then you start to think about 
the life that this child is going to have? At what point in life is this child going to reach their breaking point and finally realize the severity of what has happened to them? And, um, you know, another reason why I had to go to therapy. Well, you gain resiliency from them. Yeah. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. had to. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they, they in their own way they inspired you. Yeah, right? they did. Okay. Yeah, so we yeah, we talk about going to therapy quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Right? We try to at least. Can you explain how it was for you? Like a lot of people don't. If you've never gone before, there's that um, unfamiliar feeling of yeah. If I go to a therapist, are they going to sit me down on the couch and ask me about my mom? Mm. And and I think that's that's kind of valid at the same time. Like not knowing what yeah. you're walking into will keep people from doing things. Mm-hmm. But I'm. I'm curious, what was your experience with the therapist, if you don't mind getting into that? So coming from the African-American community is uh, one of those things where it just kind of doesn't happen. You take it to church, you go talk to someone you know, talk to a friend, but you don't go see a therapist, whatever you do. And um, But I realized that no one had gone through what I was going through. So who was I going to talk to? You know, I couldn't talk to anybody about what I was experiencing because they wouldn't understand. I could talk to a coworker, but they're going through the same thing. So I realized that there is no advantage in having a conversation with people who would not be able to give me tools to be able to understand how to get over this. So to me, in talking to a therapist, I was like, well, therapists talk to everyone. And a lot of those children were seeking therapy. And so I said, okay, well, if these children are seeking therapy to get over what they're hearing or what, the, I mean, what they're experiencing, I can talk to one to get over what I'm hearing about what they're experiencing. And so for me, I think it was so much, it was so much easier to go talk to a therapist because one, they were unbiased. They were a third party, someone who didn't know me, someone who, who I didn't believe would judge me just based off of what conversation I was having with them. Um, And someone who didn't necessarily want to understand what I was going through, but wanted to give me the tools to be able to fix myself. It goes back to that control, you know, Um, that's how I regained my control and, and control of myself uh, was just by doing that, that to me, that's what was most important. Like I said, I can't control anyone else. I, I can't um I can't give anyone else the proper advice, I think, if I haven't gone through it myself. And so for me I felt like that was important. That was really important for me to do that, for me to go and get this help for myself so that I understand what's going on with me. So then when someone else comes to me with this same type of, you know, situation going on with them then I could be that person that they could talk to if they weren't ready to go to therapy. And so, because I didn't have that person. So it was like, well, I don't have that person. So I guess I'll be that person. Did you have to cycle through a few therapists to find the right one or did you hit the first one? Yeah. Yeah. I I went to one and it was like, I was giving her therapy. So I was, (laughs) was or how about did you ever encounter with those that were pretty good at listening, but you needed tools? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, finding a right fit is always so incredibly important. Um, for you individually. For, yeah. for each individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For each individual. And I think, um, like I said, the, the one therapist where it was like I was giving her therapy, she was younger. She was younger than I was. So I had a little bit more life experience than she did. And so 
with having the conversation with her, it was just like, you haven't even experienced. You handed her a tissue and patted her on the back Pretty when you much, left. You know, yeah. it just kind of felt like that, you know. And um, I was like, no, this is a waste of time and energy and money. And you're also involved in, in what we're doing with the department with the wellness stuff. And yes. You, do you do the checkpoints? Yes, I do. And, you know, I, it's huge to get the conversations out there. Someone who is as incredibly accomplished as you are in your career and personally, professionally, all of it, right? I mean, the the people in the room with me today are all fairly accomplished at what they do. And for us to be able to have the conversation about going to a therapist and, and how that stuff works, I think that's a huge portion of, of what we need to change the culture within the police department. So thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, that that's, I hope that if they get nothing else out of this other than cool stories, that they'll understand that this is good for you. It's okay to go to a therapist yeah. and we, we need more of it. It absolutely is, especially post-COVID. Um, I think that it's so important that people are more aware of their mental health. Uh, COVID sent this world into a shock. It was it was like someone took a taser to the world, you know, and I think that um, it made everyone hyper aware of who they were, what was important to them. At least it should have. I like to hope it did. Um, it made people understand not to take things for granted that we once did. And so I I hope that their mental health is one of those things that they don't take for granted. Um, I, I think we did because we all got into the hustle and bustle of life. You know, you go to work every day. No one thought the option of working from home was one of those things that we would be looking at and we would be dealing with and would be an option for us um, in this country. But now it's like the majority thing. You know, a lot of people get to work from home and, and they get to spend more time with their families and things like that. And so in our profession, of course, that's not really an option. Um but at the same time, I think that we still have to learn how to make time for those things that are really important for us. Um, and so that that really is important for police officers to understand that with that, you know, you have to have time away from this place. And even if um, majority of your time and majority of your friends are police officers, you should do non-police things when you're outside of this place. Danny and I were just talking about this yesterday about and, and being involved in wellness units and dealing with and wellness and, and meeting with doctors and specialists from the Metroplex. And um, Danny and I were talking about it is it is not the normal for the black community to to seek counseling. Why do you believe that is? And why? I mean, you, you mentioned it. And uh, why, why is that? So, you know, like I said, a lot of black communities are very religious communities and and it's always been important to have a faith, faith based everything. And so um, the level of vulnerability that it takes to go to therapy is sometimes frowned upon, especially with males. Um, And I think just males in general, sometimes it's harder to be vulnerable so especially, I think, in the African-American community, it, it is um, when so often we feel like we have to be a little bit more, um, just a, a, a stronger, you know, to deal with, with the different things that, that happens in society. I think that 
that is why going to therapy is frowned upon because it looks like a sense of vulnerability and weakness as opposed to um, education and strength. And I I think that if, in fact, and I I think a lot more now in the African-American community is becoming a lot more aware of how important their mental health is being aware of dealing with um, your past, dealing with all those things that have have had a, had an effect on this individual or, or the community or uh, the family, having to be able to go and speak to someone about those things outside of your family who has gone through the same thing that you've gone through. They can't speak to what heals you because they're all hurting as well. And so I think that it's really important that um, in the African-American community that they understand that it is important to go gain those tools from a trained professional as opposed to speaking to someone who knows you and um, potentially can be biased to giving you answers that you actually need as opposed to what you want to hear. I would rather have a therapist tell me what I need to hear as opposed to what I want to hear because I can I can't grow if you're just being a yes man for me, you know. And so I think that it's really important to find a therapist that is going to give you that kick in the pants and make you have an aha moment and make you get there on your own as opposed to giving you all the answers because that's not what therapy is about. It's not about giving you all the answers. It's about giving you the tools to help you create the answers for yourself. And so I think that it is so important um, when someone is experiencing therapy that they find an individual that is able to give them that, that is able to, once again, challenge them to be able to figure things out on their own because that's what builds your resiliency and that's what builds your coping skills to get through whatever your next triumph is going to be. Yeah. That's so interesting, and I'm and I'm I'm glad you brought that up in the African American community that it is kind of not say taboo, but it is uncommon because uh, Demarcus Black he's a, he's in the wellness unit and he he grew up in Oak Cliff as well, and he grew up he's he's uh, slightly younger than me, and it's he he has said that, mm-hmm. but I was always curious of you know why that is why that is a thing. I think it's gotten better, yeah, you know, in, in this generation because but it's but it. As you put it, it is a thing. Yeah, it's it's a thing, and and like I said, it's a thing because um, I, I think it boils down to um, that vulnerability. It boils down to trust. Uh, trust. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, building that trust. Sometimes it, it it has a lot to do with cultural differences. You know, to be able to go and sit in front of someone who doesn't look like you and have a conversation and not feel judged. Um, you know, that that in itself is is really hard because someone may say, well, you never experienced what I experienced. You don't know anything about me. But yet we live blocks away from each other. You know exactly what the community was like. Right. You know, well, you know, and, and look at taking even another magnifying glass on top of what you just said is a police officer going to somebody that hasn't experienced what somebody hasn't experienced hearing mm-hmm. the cries of a of a infant victim that you experience so it's it's that's that's why i think there is a 
the stigma's gotten better when it comes to policing and going to going to see counselors. Um, the numbers will show that, but also it's also you have to get a level of trust and also mm-hmm. buy in from the person you're talking to. You had to do some counselor shopping mm-hmm. because it's it's like going to a doc, any doctor. I mean, if you don't yeah. want the care you're receiving, if you're not getting anything out of it, you need to move on to mm-hmm. someone that you. It, it's about you and helping yourself, right? Yeah, it is. You know, it's, it's more than just about the money spent. Yeah. It's more than just about the time spent. Going through the motion and checking yeah. off a box. It's yeah. about you have to do something that's going to yeah. help you. And if you're going to somebody that's not helping you, you need to find something different. Absolutely, because you don't want it to be a waste of your time. It needs to be something that's going to be lucrative that can help you further along in life. And you don't want to be so, so soured by the experience that you just ward off that right. You know, counseling. Yeah, absolutely. I find it interesting that we talk about how we used to think that going to a therapist was a weakness, Mm -hmm. but it, it probably takes more strength to admit that you have those problems. Yeah. And so I I tell everybody right now, it's, it's kind of my running joke that I'm like the, the vegan CrossFitter that goes to therapy (laughs) and I don't talk about being a vegan or CrossFit. Like I, I talk about therapy constantly right now and I, I'm really pushing it heavy, but you mentioned the cultural thing. The hardest person I had to talk to about therapy was my parents Mm -hmm. and letting them know that, I, I did go visit a therapist and they were like, well, what's going on? What's wrong with you? Yeah. And I was like, nothing. Yeah. There's nothing wrong. I just don't want to get to where something's wrong. Absolutely. And so that was, that was really weird for me. It was, it was awkward to, to have that conversation with my father of all mm-hmm. people, you know, I mean, my, my number one idol in the world. So to, to tell him that I was doing that was kind of weird. Yeah. And he listens now, so he'll hear this and I'll probably have him crying. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, that was that was one of the, the toughest things was admitting to my parents that I was going to therapy. Yeah. But I feel like it'd be easier not to tell them and it'd be easier not to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. So to, to push yourself into the, the uncomfortable area is actually a, a sign of strength rather than a sign of weakness. Right. No, absolutely. It is. Um, it, it takes it takes a level of self-awareness. Awareness. Uh, it's just like a someone who's addicted to alcohol or drugs. That individual could very well overcome their addiction to alcohol and drugs when they choose to do so. When you go to your parents or you go to therapy, you go to all of those different things, you have to make a decision that I am tired of feeling however I feel. And like you said, therapy before there's something quote unquote wrong is the best because it prepares you for when something does go wrong or something goes astray to be able to have the skills to deal with that. And I think that that's a negative connotation that is always attached to therapy is that there has to be something wrong. Of course, most people wait until they're there before they go. It's a deeper hole to climb out of. Right. A much deeper hole to climb out of. It's a lot easier when you go and you're still in preliminary stages of just dealing with life um, to get those tools and be able to deal with and recognize and and overcome those things um, when you go to therapy. It's just so much easier. Jessica, I want to talk about the importance of getting your family involved when it comes to mental health and you dealing with your own mental health because what you deal with and how you're behaving and what what you're carrying, it it affects your family directly, probably more than anyone else. Right. Can you talk about that? I think the importance of having your family support you in therapy is is paramount. It, it is the most important thing. Um, reason being, 
most situations that we handle in life are handled based off of past experience, whether that's past trauma or past um, successes. So when your family participates in those things with you, it helps you to understand the bond of family for one, but it also helps you better understand how to reevaluate the way that you handle situations. And it also helps your family understand how to handle situations. So whether it's trauma or whether it's a success or, or whether it's just something that just alters the way life is, um, having your family there as a support. And family does not always mean someone that's, bu- that's blood. So we can understand that family has a, a lot of different meanings, whatever family means to you. It's really important to have those individuals to support you in that aspect because it helps you to develop new ways and new concepts and new tools in handling how you go through life and how you reevaluate these situations. So something that you may have, you may respond to that was traumatic in your past. And so your current response is going to come from a place of anxiety and trauma. And it may not be the response that you should be giving in that situation. And that, and that can directly affect the people closest to you because they don't Absolutely. have an understanding and they don't know what you go through because right. you and I have talked before that as first responders and seeing the, the, the type of things that we see, we do, we to shield the people close to us that are not involved in this profession, right. we do shield them and minimize what we see and do. Yes, absolutely. And so sometimes our families don't understand the way we respond. They may not understand why we sit a certain direction in a restaurant or, you know, some people see it as paranoia. Some people see it as hypervigilance. It it could be a little bit of both. Um, For us, we see it as preparedness. So it's all about perspective on that. And, And so I think sometimes with therapy, it helps families and it helps our spouses and children to understand, okay, this is the way, this is how I am. This job has changed me in this way. And so to help you understand, this is how I am. And this is, this is my expectation of how I'm going to change and perform. Um, now, and for us, we see it sometimes as life or death. Um, it can keep us alive. And, and, and so, um, I think that message sometimes hard to stress to, to families, but, once they understand, sometimes our mindsets in therapy sometimes helps us explain what our mindset is. And we may not always be able to do that. Uh, sometimes having the mediator there, the therapist or, or someone that we can talk to helps us to better explain these things to our family and helps our families better understand us in our profession. What well, could save marriages and Absolutely. relationships. Absolutely. We, we, see it, we see it all the time with yeah. uh, relationships failing because there's no communication. Right. Or just it's a it's a communication with a lens over it. Because yes. in our mind, we're trying to protect. We're so used to protecting people. Mm-hmm. We put a lens over it and and, uh, and we don't communicate it well. It's not received well. Right. And it can cause a relationship to deteriorate because you go home and and you're processing still what you just experienced. Mm-hmm. Your loved one, may, they don't understand. They don't know exactly what you went through. Right. And they think it's it affects them yeah it can affect them directly the kids the the uh the spouse the mm-hmm. you know 
girlfriend, boyfriend, and we see it all the time in this profession that mm-hmm. the family suffers more than anybody. Yeah. A, a lot of times our, our families may think we have a wall of cynicism that's up and around us. And that's not necessarily the case. Like you said, it's it's our method of protection for them. And they may not necessarily understand that all the time. And so therapy is a great way to communicate how we're feeling, what we're feeling, and our reasons behind why we do what we do. Well, we're not only getting tools for ourselves of, of uh, compartmentalizing and, and, and coping with with what we're dealing with. We're also giving tools to our loved ones Absolutely. so they can better understand and also process and, and uh, mm-hmm. cope with with our reaction. Yeah, yeah. And and those that can, like you said, can save marriages because then some something that may have started an argument previously, now there's room for grace. There's room for understanding. There's room for just taking that moment of silence sometimes instead of probing and pressing and let's have the conversation right now. Maybe we should revisit this conversation later. You know, that sometimes is a better option. Because when you're you're tired, you're coming home, you're in the moment, like you said, you just experienced something that, you know, still has you pretty high, heightened, your senses pretty heightened. You don't want to have a conversation in that moment because you may say something irrational and it's very hard to take your rational things back. Yeah, you can't. You, there's a lot of words, uh, even a lot of looks that you cannot yes. take back and, and uh, that can start you down a road of, of a downfall of a relationship. Absolutely. And you could better, you know, and I guess say you'll save everything, right. but you sure can put yourself and put your significant other in mm-hmm. a position to avoid that and yes. actually process everything better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It'll save relationships and help relationships grow. And that's the whole reason for, you know, for it. I, I, I'm, that's why I'm a firm believer in, in therapy. You have always been in high pressure situations going back to competition dance and then you're dealing with death death and graphic images working in the emmy's office and then just through the natural career of starting the southwest there's a lot of violence out in southwest mm-hmm. that you're exposed to young age and then you go to some of the worst crimes and then now you're one of the commanders sergeants at the dallas homicide unit yes and dallas homicide has very rich history Mm-hmm. of excellence i mean going back to the captain fritz days mm-hmm. uh detective Islam, she's you know she's up there and we and the listener has heard her story and y'all have an amazing group and can you talk about joining that unit as a supervisor how starting at the emmy's office wanting to know a path of how a person in, ended up there now you're in a unit that has to put those puzzle pieces together yeah so in a sense life has come full circle um and andrea she she works for me she's an amazing detective i I sometimes get onto her because she's she's such a hard worker um and she doesn't relax and so i have to tell her you need to take a moment so she's getting better um but i i think now with being there in homicide um Everyone always asks, how are you there? How does that work with your family? Like how, that, that's a demand. Like how, how do you do that? Why do you want to do that? And um, 
it's more than a job to me, you know? It, we we spend a lot of hours together. We do. We spend a lot of hours together. So it's like my second family. Um, and when you do, and you know, Daniel, y'all spend a lot of hours together in SWAT. Lots we, of meals, lots of hours together, yeah. more than you do with your own family. Absolutely. And so you, when you have that, um, it starts to develop relationships that, are, are like, you know, your brothers, your sisters. Um, and, and that helps you get through everything that you're seeing. We see the worst of the worst. We see people at their worst moments in life. We deal with families at their worst moment in their lives as well. We're giving information to families in moments where they could never fathom was going to happen, you know, things that they never thought would occur and when you're in those moments you know you have to you have to know you so you have to be able to communicate with that person on a human yet professional level and someone said to me one day on the scene well why aren't you upset about this and I had to explain to them well if I'm emotional with you then I can't do my job I can be emotionally professional with you, but I still have a job to do. And so I think it's just, um, you know, being there, being in homicide, it's one of those jobs where um, it takes a very special individual to do that job. Those detectives work endless hours to do that job. They're there on their off days. They're there on their weekends. They're there you know, when we had the ice storm, they're yeah. in the office. Um, sometimes we sleep there, you know. Um, there's a recliner <laughs> in our file room. Go catch a nap there. You know, those are those those are what the things that we deal with, you know, on a regular basis. Um, just because these detectives work so hard to get resolution and get justice and, and solve these cases. There is not a detective in that office that I know of that is happy when they don't have a case that's solved. Now, can they dwell there? Absolutely not. They can't because the next one is coming in. But they're not happy that they have open cases. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes that's just how life is. We can't solve everything until, you know, we have the help of the general public. And that's what's really important is having that relationship with the general public to be able to solve these cases. Because a lot of times people people think that we can just do our job. Yeah, we can do our job, but we need the general public to be able to do our job. And that's what makes the difference because they're the ones who know these individuals intimately. They know what they were into. They know what they're doing. They know everything about the moments that led up to their death. And so um, these detectives have to get out there and they're the boots on the ground and they they go out there and they make sure that they get the information that they need and they talk to the individuals that they need to talk to, even when they don't want to talk to them. And uh, that's what's really important. And so for me being the supervisor there um, and doing that job, it, it, I have a lot of different hats that I have to, to switch on and off. And dealing with the families is really hard sometimes because they don't understand. It's a lot of grief. Yeah, it's a lot of grief. And a lot of times it's directed at us and, you know, it's displaced and we understand that. And so, you know, because it is displaced, you have to 
tread lightly, but yet professionally um, around that. And just let people know that, hey, we're, we're doing our job. We're doing the best that we can uh, to solve the case. Sometimes we solve the cases and the family still aren't happy, you know, and, and, and I get it. And it's because, like you said, they're at a level of grief that we're not experiencing at that moment for ourselves. And so they don't think that we understand, but we do. We really do. Well, because you're a human being. And, right. And we've all experienced loss of some, yeah. of some kind. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the family being upset with you even when you you solve it. And once you solve it and you get to tab seven and you get a warrant and, and a, a PC affidavit and you mm-hmm. get a you get a person arrested and then you have to build it for prosecution. Right. And then a lot of times that does not work out like the family would like or how you would like. Mm-hmm. And you have to deal with that ire of the of the family. We had uh, Richard Cherylman here uh, just last week, and I know you know him very well. Yes. He spoke highly of you. <laughs> I speak uh, highly of him. Yeah, he's an incredible guy. But he talked about his outlook of just seeing that he was exposed to so much violence, and he was out with y'all on these scenes. Yeah. And you've already had so much exposure to violence and, and just graphic crimes going to this unit how have you changed at all? I say, you, yeah. Okay. And, also. and I'm always changing though. So I, I've changed just because one, it's a different work group, you know, it's a new work group. Um, and they move differently. And so, um, the, the way that I've changed, I've had to learn to be somewhat a buffer for them and the families sometimes Um, because sometimes the family is so upset and so angry, you know, about what has happened to their loved one that I have to come in sometimes and say the same exact thing that the detective said, but because it's coming from their sergeant, then it's different, you know? Um, And I I have to get them to understand, no, they told you the same thing. I I just said it to you. Um, as the supervisor. And so that that's that's one of the things that I think is is probably the hardest is dealing with the families. Um but as far as me changing, you know, I never would take off from work. Like I I never took a day off from work. And um I think since I've been there, I take time now. I take time off. Um just for myself. You know, some days I may do absolutely nothing, but I'll take the time off just because it's really important for me now to experience life as it's happening in the moment for myself. And like I said at the beginning, you know, death puts life into perspective and has definitely put my life into perspective for me. Um, you know, and so that in itself, how it has changed me. Um, now I, I don't feel like I'm giving so much to the job um, as I was before. I know, especially when I was a detective myself, spending endless hours, you know, my son was so used to being, you know, dropped off at a grandparent's house or something like that. Or, or, you know, he, he wasn't used to me being home a lot, uh, when I was a detective. And so now, now my children are like, why are you here? Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing home? Or, you know, but they also know when I'm on call that I'm likely going to be gone. You know, it's, it's days where 
they wake up and I'm not there. They go to bed. I'm not there, you know. Um, but now that my, my older son is, is, you know, he's a teenager and, you know, my youngest son, he's five. And in his own little way, you know, if he sees me getting up and getting dressed, he's like, hey, did call somebody. Out. Yeah. He knows call out. Yeah, he knows call out. He's like, did somebody kill somebody? <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you know, that's yeah. his question. Did somebody kill somebody? And so in his own little five-year-old way, he, you know, he has to wrap his mind around that but he knows hey mom will be back home she'll be back to make sure she gets me from from school or get me to school or you know get me to my taekwondo classes and so it's just all these different things that I try to make sure that I'm very present for now um, that I don't think I was really aware of before Um, and so yeah I, I think life has made or the job has made me a lot more aware of um who I am, who I want to be, and what I, how I want my family to see me and remember me when I die eventually, you know? So talking about family, it's not easy being in a relationship with a police officer or being related to one. Yeah. And you've gone down the path of some of the worst positions on the department to, to be at, especially with the callback load. Is there anybody you want to shout out real quick while you while you got the chance? Of course, I'm always going to shout out my family. You know, my husband and my two sons. Um, they are, and and my, you know what, my mom, my grandmother, my mother in law, all of those people are like my really big support system. Um, and they're here. My sister, yeah, they're here. That's great. Yeah, yeah. they're all here. Uh, I have a really small family, um, but there's never a time that I can't call someone and say, "Hey, I'm on my way to work." And they support me immensely, um, always have. And, and so it's always been uh, really, really, I try not to take that for granted now. You know, before I used to just, like I said, drop my son off and just go into work. But now it's just like, wait a minute, how are you doing? Do you need something? You know, before I drop him off, do you need something? And so um, I think that has put so much more um, in perspective. They're older now, and so I don't take for granted that, they're willing to watch my kids now that they are older. Um, my mom helps me out a lot. She picks up my little one and, you know, she she treats him as if he's her own. And um, so all of those things, my support system is like, I, I don't think I could have a better support system. Um, and my friends, I have a really good friend base. And, and, you know, all of my friends, same thing. I can call them up at any time and, and tell them, hey, this is what I need. And they'll come up to my job if, you know, if I need them to. They'll Uber eats me some food if I need them to, you know. And so, like, I have really great people around me um, that are, are in this thing with me, you know. And I kind of laugh sometimes because when I, I'm off work and I'm with them and they're like, so what's going on at work? And I'm like, I really don't want to talk about work. Right. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk about work. I used work. to get my in-laws so <laughs> upset because they'd ask me how work is. I was mm-hmm. like, I, this is the last thing I want to talk about yeah. is, is how work is going. Like, yeah. let's talk about politics or right. religion, like anything right. other than work right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's that's the. I think for me, my support system is probably a really, really great one. So what's next for you? I mean, you, like promotion or? Yes. Okay. Mm. Talk about this. All right. So I do plan to promote, but I also plan to go back to medical school. And so I've also uh, been offered. Because everything on this piece of paper isn't enough. <laughs> Let's add some yeah. more things here. <laughs> 
So I, I have a doctor that has offered me the opportunity to come and uh, just kind of shadow him for a while. So I'll be spending my off days um, doing that. And, and so um, I, I just have to psych myself up to being a student again, you know, um, because I, I just I don't know. I don't know if I have it in me to be a student again. I do, but right now I'm telling myself I don't. Have so. you really ever stopped learning, though? Because it seems like no. you've done no several different jobs on the department. and I haven't. Yeah, you're constantly learning. I haven't. And you know what? And that's that's the hard part for me because I'm thinking to myself, I still have so much more to learn. It's still so much more that I want to learn. You know, um, there's so much more that I want to do. And so it's just like, where do I fit all of that? Like, how do I put that into little boxes to be able to allow time and mental space for myself and for my family? And so um, do I want to promote? Yes. Um, I missed the last lieutenant's exam. Um, that was totally my fault. And and I hate that I did, but I did. And there's a reason that I did. Whatever that reason is, it doesn't matter because I am where I am. And I'm very appreciative to be in a spot that I'm happy where I am. And so um, the timing just wasn't right. It, it just wasn't the right time. And so um, I, I never get upset about where I am in life because everything is a lesson and everything is an accomplishment if you allow it to be. And so um, that is my plan to promote. And if I don't, I'm OK with that also. Um I do want to go back to medical school and I, I do want to pursue medicine. Um, what I want to do in that field, I'm not exactly sure, but what I've really been thinking about is dealing with children who have um, congenital um, defects. And so that's kind of what I think I want to do is, is deal with children who are born with severe birth defects and um, try to help their families get through that. So yeah, that's in my next phase of life. That's maybe, maybe, maybe not, you know. I can't think of a better person to have that as a as a goal and to succeed in that. I you. really hope I can. You yeah. will. Jessica, I have a couple of questions to finish, just to wrap this up. Okay. Firstly, when's the last time you danced your ass off? <laughs> well, um... Let's see. So I like to salsa dance. Okay. And I think the last time there was a concert that they had in a park. You know, they used to have those concerts in the park. And there was a band on the stage. And I remember going to the stage and dancing on the stage until I was drenched. And I think I danced all night with that band on stage. And... That was probably the last time, or maybe not. Yeah, I think that was. I, I think I remember that being the How last time. How long ago was that? Oh, that's been some years. Okay. That's been a lot of years. Oh, a lot of years. About ten years. Yeah. Need to revisit that stage and the salsa dancing. I, I would. I would love to. It's you know, it's not a lot of places that have you know live bands anymore. Um, and now that I'm older, it's a lot of places I don't even want to go. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, going into I was never a big clubber, but going into that setting, I, I used to love. I know the Monica's used to be in Deep Ellum, and they would have the Friday nights with the the band, the the um, the salsa bands there, and um, just going there and just dancing the night away, you know. But can't do that anymore, you know. Unfortunately, 
uh, the world we live in doesn't necessarily, I mean, you could do it if you wanted to, but I'm just apprehensive about doing that. So, um, but I would love to, yes. You mentioned in your bio that you, you talked about your family, mm-hmm. having a tight family, but there's two family members that you did not mention. Who's that? The fish. Are they still alive? <laughs> by the grace of God, yes. Okay. You said that the fish may not be alive by the time I read this bio. We started off with five fish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my children wanted a pet. And so they want a dog. And I said, well, a dog come with a lot of responsibility. A pet means you can pet it, right? Yeah. Can you pet a fish? <laughs> You, you can, but it may you run away. You the kids. Yeah. You can milk anything with nipples. Yeah. 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 yeah, you can. You can. So I told him, I said, okay, we'll start off with fish, with, with the fish, and how you take care of the fish will determine whether or not you get a dog. We're not doing very well. Right. So we probably won't get a dog anytime uh, soon. <laughs> that's a pretty uh, stacked deck, though. Like, we know fish, especially, like, if you don't want fish to live, you know which fish to buy. My dad pulled this, that same trick This once. is true. This is true. Um, I did not do that, though. I actually got fish that I thought were decent little fish. Um, of course, I don't know anything about aquariums either, so maybe yeah. I did. Maybe, As my son said, Mom, you bought carnival fish. I'm like, what is a carnival fish? He said, you know the fish you get at the carnival, you win as a prize, and by the time you get home, they're dead? In the plastic bag, yeah. In the plastic bag. Yeah, he told me I did that one day. So we went and got new fish because I didn't know there was a hierarchy. And so I went and got some more fish, right? And so now these fish... But my youngest son, I have to ask him, did you feed your fish today? And he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> those. <laughs> yeah, those. You need to go feed them. <laughs> so, yes, they're still alive. Still two kicking. of the five are still right. kicking. Yeah. Shout out to the fish. Shout out I to know. the two fish. Yeah. I was like, I've been wanting since I read your bio. I'll go, okay, I'm going to ask about these but fish. But now, by the time this air, they may not be <laughs> Yeah, they, we may we may have to do like an R.I.P. Two fish. Yes, we may have to do an RIP. At well, the end. you know what? I will on the on the episode description time it airs. Uh-huh. I'll get back with you before and yeah. yeah. We'll this episode dedicated to yes, yeah. the fish. It's one of the, the two fish. fish. I'll even take a picture for you. Please, yes. <laughs> do they have names? They don't. No, no they, don't. they don't. One okay. fish, yeah. two fish. One fish, yeah. two yeah. fish. That's yeah. right. One fish, two fish. That's what they are. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for sitting with us. Um, it's been a pleasure. Oh my gosh! It's, I guarantee we've. I, I've been wanting to get you on for, I've been talking to you. How many months have I been bugging you? Uh, it's been, a year? Yeah, no, about it's a been year. about a yeah, year. Yeah, it's been yeah. about a year, actually. And now, yeah. finally, we got you down. Yeah. We survived uh, the, the lights going out in the building we, we were did. recorded in, and yeah. we survived that. And uh, I think the ATL listeners, especially the ones that have been calling for you to come on, um, and I've been getting texts as I'm sitting here from people mm-hmm. asking how it's going. Yeah. I think they're going to be more than happy with uh the product and you as a person and there's gonna be a lot of things that were said about you they don't have a clue of and they're gonna be really surprised with well um you know like i said i i really am humbled by that and i'm really flattered uh that y'all have me here and and that people feel the way they feel uh about me you know it's i don't i don't take that for granted you know um it's one of those things where having someone that thinks highly of you is is a very humbling thing. It should be. Um, I think that for those individuals, I really appreciate those people. Um, they are instrumental to my success in this department. 
uh, no matter who they are, no matter what their rank is, uh, just having that support, having, um, I think having people who believe in you, regardless of when you doubt yourself, um, you know, I, I'm human, I have those moments I doubt myself, um, and just knowing that I have someone who's there, who believes in me, regardless, is really important, and um, I hope when I leave this career that I have left um, a legacy that allows other individuals to be able to do the same thing and come along in the ranks and, and just be able to accomplish whatever it is that they want and understand that somebody cares about them accomplishing everything that they've ever set out to do, whether it's at this department or outside of this department. And um, I hope that I've been that person for someone. Perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for your friendship. And it's our it's my honor to have you here behind this mic finally. Thank you. If, ATO listeners, if you're not a fan of Je- Jessica Criddle, you will be after hearing this. Thank you. Well, thank you, everyone. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Mrs. A. Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Never give up